0: Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man, who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC, who's who? Ultra mm-hmm. Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning, Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom, Stranger, District, and Arisia and Woozy Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's
1: Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, Update 87, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the Irridy Mobile Shag from Firestormfan.com. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from AquamanShrine.net. How you doing, buddy?
2: I'm doing well, and I'm excited because this issue seems built just for you, Shag.
1: Well, cover, at least the, the cover, cover is. Yeah, the cover. <laughs> we'll get to that in just a moment, but uh, that's right, folks. We are back uh, for Who's Who. It's been quite a while. It's been mm-hmm. what, almost two months, I think. But you know what? It was worth it. We wanted to make sure we did it right. We didn't want to shortchange it. And I've been on the road a lot, so we had to take the time to get this sucker just right. Well, so, I, yes.
2: did, I did record,
1: uh, uh,
2: you know, Who's Who with Mike Bailey while you were gone. Do you not know that?
1: No, I, I wasn't oh. aware of that. Oh, but this is knowing- awkward. Knowing how you are with these things, it's probably Mike's probably like, Rob, what would you think of the entry? And you're like, I didn't read it. And he's like, what do you <laughs> think of this page? I didn't read it. So, um, you know, at least with the extra weeks, you should, hopefully you got someone to maybe read it aloud to you or something, like a good night book. Uh,
2: so. what, who, what are we doing? Hold on. Who's Who? This? Hold Update on. Let me, let me catch up. Hold on. Wait a minute. Okay. Gray Man. Yeah, all right. I got it. All right. Okay. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> it's Who's Who? Update 87, Volume 3. That's right. Volume 3. We are Passing the halfway point in the Update 87 series. But before we go any further, we should probably take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, uh, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, Rob? Well, because this issue's main character, as you could tell
2: from the saucy cover, is Lady Blackhawk, I chose some Blackhawk comics, Uh, you know, because I've been in a real Blackhawk mood lately. So uh, this time it's Showcase Presents Blackhawk Trade Paperback Volume 1, Uh, writers various – I'm not familiar with his work – artists Dick (laughs) Dillon, Charles Kudera, and Sheldon Moldoff. The cover is by Dick Dillon, the beloved Dick Dillon. 512 pages uh, <coughs> features the 1950s adventures of the Blackhawks are collected for the first time in this new volume, featuring stories from Blackhawks from 108 through 127. The normal price is $16.99. In stock trades price though is $9.34. That's 45% off. The cover, I said, it's by Dick Dillon, and it's got the Blackhawks shooting at at the uh, King Shark, which is just fantastic. So you, you can't beat it. Uh, Ten bucks for 500 pages of awesome Blackhawk adventure.
1: Very nice. Well, also, another one of the lead characters in this episode uh, who's hiding beneath uh, Lady Blackhawk's buttocks would be um John Which is a Constance. dumb
2: place to hide because everybody's looking there.
1: It's true. Okay, let's just put it out there, folks. The star of the cover of Who's Who, Update 87, Volume 3, is in fact Lady Blackhawk's rear end. <laughs> That's right. That is the single number one focus point on the whole cover, and we'll explain why in a bit. But anyway, uh, John Constantine's in here, or John Constantine, depending on how you pronounce it. And I decided to go and pick the, the first Hellblazer story I ever read, which is the trade paperback Dangerous Habits. This is a fantastic trade. Now... Uh, the, the version I have is actually different. The new edition is out of the trade, and it's actually got even more than mine. So check this out: blazer trade paperback, volume five, Dangerous Habits. It's a new edition, and it collects not just Garthena's uh, the beginning of Garthena's run, but also collects the end of Jamie Delano's run before that. Then it gets into the Garthena stuff. So altogether, you're going to get issues uh, 34 through 46. So if you've never read the first few issues of Garthena's Hellblazer run, I cannot tell you how good it is and recommend it highly enough. You don't have to know anything about Hellblazer. You do not have to have seen the movie or the TV series or read anything. You can jump right in right here and enjoy the hell out of it. Basically, uh, John is diagnosed with lung cancer, and it's all about him being a bastard and getting out of it. It's glorious um this collected trade is 352 pages again because it's got the jimmy delano stuff as well all color normally retails for $19.99 you can get it for 45 percent off right now which is $10.99 and I'm, I'm telling you guys if you've ever wanted to read some hellblazer and you've never never got around to it this is the trade to get that's uh hellblazer volume 5 dangerous habits new edition
0: so good
1: so Again, our thanks to InStockTrades, and uh, it's InStockTrades.com. Be sure to visit them and go up to the Contact Us little button. Click them and tell them, you know what? Hey, guys, I, uh, I heard about you guys on the Fire & Water podcast, or the Who's Who podcast, which is part of the Fire & Water podcast. So we'd love for that kind of support. All right. Well, this is it, man. I, I, I've i been looking forward to this. I've been thinking about this so much. I love doing the Who's Who episodes. It's so exciting. So. All right. Just to give you some background on, on the Who's Who comic, uh, you know, let's do the cover. Forget it. We'll do the other stuff in a minute. So <laughs> I am all over the board right now. Let's talk about the cover. So, all right, Who's Who, Update eighty-seven, Volume three, uh, cover dated October nineteen eighty-seven. However, if you want a mint, pristine copy, you need to get in your time bubble and travel back to July second. 1987. That's right, just before July 4th. Buy some fireworks while you're there, and thanks to Mike's Amazing World of uh, Comics for that information. The cover is by Eduardo Barreto, and again, as I mentioned, the star of the cover is literally Lady Blackhawk's rear end. She is she's looking at the camera, but she is literally turned, and her, her rear end is facing you, and it's the dead square image. And the other co-star of the cover is Kat Matui's Womanly Curves. <laughs> And surrounding them, staring at the girls, is Kilowog, Iron Man Ro, the, uh the Guardians who are not amused, and several other characters. In fact, Iron Man Ro's giving them a thumbs up. Or he's thinking about what he could do with that thumb. Either way, it's really creepy. Oh my god. Oh. What, because I wasn't going to go there? <laughs> anyway. Um... Michael Bailey wouldn't have gone there, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> And that's why you don't record with them on a regular basis. <laughs> you need me. Uh, in the bottom, you've got a huge face of Luther. You've got the gray man. I mean, it's a really, really well-done cover. You've got folks that are interacting. You've got everyone. There's a lot of movement going on. There's, there's neat characters paired up. What, what did you think of this cover?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty good. Eduardo Barreto had a pretty uh, sort of cl- classic style. Uh, there, was a, you know, there was a reason why he did a lot of merchandising art after JLGL kind of stopped doing it. Um, it's nice. It's, it's full. Uh, it, it, it does that thing that I say that I don't like where it sort of plays with the spatial relations of certain characters that always annoys me. And I am amazed that the Blackhawk, Lady Blackhawk pose got through. I really am. (laughs) I mean, it's not that big of a deal, but it, it really is a pretty sexualized image. And for who's who, that's sort of surprising, but then I'm starting to think that it was maybe kind of like, um. A tribute to those World War II posters, you know, where it was just like, "Hey boys, this is why you're fighting." You know, they had those kinds of <laughs> for this, things for this piece of ass. That's well, what no, you're fighting well, no, for. no, But they had, they had posts like on painted on the sides of planes and stuff. That's what they okay. had. Those girls. So this, that's not anything, you know, crazy. Um, so it's it's neat. A lot of the characters all, you know, interacting with one another and stuff. So no, it's pretty good. <laughs>
1: I don't know. I, I see where you're coming from. I, I get that because she, again, she's from World War II. That does make sense. But those are 18 to 22-year-old fighter jockeys. This is being bought by 13-year-old boys. And it's not surrounded by any other World War II stuff. So it's editors really shouldn't have let this one pass. I'm sorry. They shouldn't have. I love it. It's gorgeous, of course. It's beautiful. And she's totally smoking hot. And she goes past hot and super hot straight to smoking hot. And uh, but it's 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 not appropriate. I mean, she even got a little cheek hanging out under the skirt, man. Oh
2: God! What? It's right there. You're making anyway. you're really making me miss your boring recitations about the rules of who's who. Uh, that oh, those we are do coming every month right. for twenty
1: eight months straight those are coming uh, I, I, you get Lion Mane and Manicore interacting you got hazard and icicle kind of together almost a little hint of romance between icicle and hazard there you got lady Shiva and Kanto, and <laughs> Lady Shiva she is does not, not having, look happy yeah. she is not having any of his nonsense right now, which is great you've got kite man in the back with a hang glider, which makes me so happy. It makes me so happy and uh, it's just a it's a fun cover again it's the, I do wonder what's going on with Kilowog. I think Kilowog is actually tapping Iron Man Row in the shoulder as I if to say, hey, "Hey, pal, hey, Poozer, quit, quit leering at the women." I think is what he's trying mm-hmm. to do. So he's he has one of those shirts that says, "This is what a feminist looks like" underneath his Green Lantern shirt. I think. But anyway, um, fun, fun comic. So um, you know what else? Uh, let, let's talk about what was on the shelf at the same time as this issue. So to give you guys some uh, somewhat of a perspective. So again, this is hitting the shelves July of 87. Other comics you would have found on the shelves in July 1987, also thanks to Mike's Amazing World DC Comics, is, uh, and I'm going to run through these fairly quickly, Superman number 10, Adventures of Superman 433, Action Comics 593. Now this is still when Action Comics was a team-up book, basically. You get the Superman 4 movie special. <laughs> oh that boy. Puts, that puts things in perspective. <laughs> The nuclear man. Um, Batman 412, which is still the Max Allen Collins and Dave Cockromera. Detective 579. Firestorm Annual Number 5. For you, Matchheads, this was the issue of the huge change where Firestorm would never be the same from that point on. Uh, Happened this month. Green Lantern Corps 217. Infinity Inc. Number 43. Still, unfortunately, a year away from cancellation. Legion of Superheroes, The Baxter Edition. This is uh, issue 39. Annual Number 3 was on the shelves as well. New Teen Titans. Baxter volume, issue 36, apparently Starfire kills on the cover. Swamp Thing 65, which is the Rick Veach era, an annual number three at the same time. Then, as far as the books that were still fairly new at this point, these are the ones that were on the shelf. To me, these are more memorable. The other ones are sort of like the old hat, the comics that have been around forever. These were more memorable to me. Tomb Patrol number one was on the shelf this month. Doctor Fate number four from the miniseries, not not the... uh, not the ongoing, Flash, number five, Justice League, number six, Suicide Squad, number six, Wonder Woman, number nine, Young All-Stars, number five, Question, number nine, Hawkman, number 15, which was shockingly still being published, Secret Origins, number 19.
2: Why do you
1: say that? How popular was that book, and how many morts are in these issues from that series? Uh, true. Well,
2: maybe it had Darkwing <laughs> Duck in it or whatever. <laughs> the character's a mess.
1: All right. Um, All right, so here are, as Rob likes to call them, the boring uh, who's who rules. (laughs) So... Just a real quick, once we get into the book here, as we look at the pages, you'll on each in each individual page, just in case you've never looked at a who's who before, which I don't know why you'd be listening if you haven't, but you get a fairly large image of your character in full color, and then in the background in a single color, which is called a surprint, you see a lot of different images, maybe a close-up of their face without their mask. You see something showing maybe their powers or something about their origin. It's something that tells you a little more about the character. You get their name and a cool font. You get Then you get all this text with their personal data, like height, weight, you know, super their powers, their history, all this great stuff and um, uh, what else here am I trying to say um, you know what, the, the fact is you don't have to have these comics in front of you the, our goal is to be able to describe them enough so that you don't need them in front of you and in fact, uh, to make your life a little easier we're going to post some of them on our Tumblr page we'll post about, I don't know, 10 or 15 of them on the, on the Tumblr page Rob, why don't you tell the folks at home what that Tumblr page is
2: fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com
1: very good. And so very good as in well done. You you did your job properly. Thank, Thank you for. We appreciate that. Here's a cookie. So go check those out because what I don't want you to do, I don't want you to try and flip through the comic while you're driving a car because that's just going to cause an accident. It's worse than it's worse than texting. It really is. So leave the comics at home, folks. That don't Kyle <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I think that's all. Then we're going to get into this. So here we go, the letters page. We get some good letters this time where they they talk about Batgirl because last issue, you know, or a couple issues ago, we got Batgirl redone and they're still talking about the letters. And basically what what you get the editor saying is that there were enough changes in the post-crisis era, post-Batman year one era, where they felt like they needed to address Batgirl and make her a separate character as, as not... Commissioner Gordon's daughter, but Commissioner Gordon's niece. So they chat about that for a bit. And, in fact, you can hear more about that on an upcoming episode of Secret Origins, uh, where Stella will be talking about Batgirl, and somebody might crash the party. We'll see. Then uh, in here, also, you get there is a question about Aquaman. Did you see that?
2: Yes, yes, I did. When you tell the it.
1: folks home about that?
2: Well, it's uh, Christopher Romano uh, asks, like, why didn't Aquaman get a new listing? Because uh, he got a new costume and, like, he had lots of changes. And uh, they answer, in the specific case of Aquaman, that costume was a one-time-only camouflage outfit. The outfit that makes me sad. Uh, when next we see the Sea King, he will be in a traditional togs, joining Earth's other heroes in a meeting for a meeting about Millennium. Yeah, try and build excitement for that turd. And it says... After that, he will team with Aqualad and Teen Titans, and it goes on and on about where Aquaman is going to be appearing. So, once again, Aquaman kind of gets dissed, but, you know, just such as it was in uh, DC Comics in the 80s.
1: But the camo suit was more than just the miniseries. It made it into a special, too, didn't it?
2: It made it into the special, but then he changes into the regular suit pretty quickly after that. So, But I don't remember it being, like, officially, like, no, 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 he's not bringing... I, I think they intended to keep him that new costume, and then they just realized it was so damn difficult to draw that they passed on it.
1: Or he appeared in like the Teen Titans Spotlight, and they forgot to draw it or something. Well,
2: no, because like, uh, not that we want to get off track so early on in the show, but if you look at apparently some, you do. Well, you brought it up. Uh, if you if you look at some of the unpublished art that Jerome K. Moore did for the second Aquaman miniseries, he's in the camo suit. Mm. so they clearly intended to have him wear it at some other point so yeah
1: okay and uh by the way can you confirm for us now for the folks at home that christopher romano is just one of your aliases
2: yes it is that's when i lived in pacific palisades california why did i ever leave
1: I don't know. Can't even imagine. Then they go on here, uh, where at one point they th- they asked about including creator credits yeah. on the listings, <laughs> and uh, it's just interesting going all the way back to 1987. They had creator cr- uh, creator credit problems all the way back then, still haunting them today, aren't isn't it? Yeah. Okay, let's get into the first entry. First entry is Gray Man. This is the character from the Justice League International, or at that point, just Justice League book. He is a really kind of an interesting character. The, his, he's a cosmic entity who, who was uh, brought in by the Lords of Order or Lords of Chaos. I forget which one. I think the Order. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. His job is to go and collect the leftover Dream Essence from the dead. What a cool power. And eventually he wanted more power, so he ended up stealing Dream Essence from the living. And that's where he uh, ended up facing off against the Justice League. Amazing artwork here, by the way, by Mark Beecham. Looks almost Sienkiewicz with the way he used shadows and lighting and and, and blacks. I, I I love the art. And it you get seems a more Neil
2: Adams-y to me, but
1: oh, you think so? Yeah. Hmm, okay, could be. I could see that influence. And uh, but you get a two tone um, sir print. Mm-hmm. Not not you know not something you see too often.
2: Yeah, it's it's a nice piece. I like that the logo is done entirely in zipatone. Yeah, That's probably wasn't terribly uh, easy to do. Uh, it, it's interesting that they chose somebody whose art style was so diametrically opposed to Kevin Maguire, right? And because that's where he first appeared in Justice like League Number Two, which was a Kevin McGuire thing. They went completely the opposite of Kevin Maguire's sort of cartoony, fun style and went with
1: somebody really serious and kind of nasty looking. You know, in Mark Beecham, this is the only time Mark drew the character, and. Um... But what's interesting is they, they mentioned Sandman too, which is the Jack Kirby Hector Hall version of Sandman. But you know, if you look at the way he looks here, couldn't you picture him in those early issues of Neil Gaiman Sandman?
2: Oh yeah, sure.
1: Yeah, and that was you know the Dream essence that's right up that alley. So that would have been kind of an interesting thing. And I wonder if Green Man ever appeared in the Sandman. I, I read it, but it's been so many years I don't remember. I don't yeah I don't remember. And this is the part where I normally tell people where they can find out more about the character. And I'm going to put it out there, folks. Somebody needs to start, unless I'm unaware of one, a Justice League International or a podcast or blog. I mean, I can't believe there's not one out there that we know of. You know?
2: I know somebody out there is starting a Justice League podcast. I don't think it's gonna be covering the Internet the the later iterations of the team though.
1: Ah uh, okay.
2: All right. Maybe we'll get them on it when they're done. There we go. By the way it's uh, not me. I'm not trying to be clever. It's not me.
1: That would be very difficult for you to be clever, so Up next, the Green Lantern Corps, and boy, do I feel like we have done this already, over and freaking over, I'm sorry, just in the last few months of Who's Who, we have covered Guy Gardner, Aresia, Zamorans, Chip, I feel like we have done this group over and over and over, and I'm tired of it, so, keeping it brief, there is really not much new in here, um, uh, yeah, I'm not even going to talk about it. It's revised, and basically all it is is the Green Lantern Corps. They've shut down the intergalactic operations, and they said, Green Lantern Corps people, go do what you want to do! Be free! And so seven of them have come and now live on Earth. And you get folks like Arisia, Chip, Guy Gardner, Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Kat Matui, Kilowog, and Salak. All of which we have either talked about or will talk about soon. And uh, the art is by Joe Staton, and it is my least favorite period of Green Lantern artwork. Anything you got to say about it? I'm not being very kind, am I?
2: No, I dig it. I like the I like the the look of it. I love the the bachelor pad that they have, and it's in the surprint. It's <laughs> very true. much like uh, what happens when when seven Green Lanterns stop being heroes and start being real. Uh, but uh, <laughs> oh, wait, it's eight. I'm sorry. Eight. I'm sorry. I can't count. I'm from New Jersey, so uh, yeah. No, no. I I this was definitely the the. The, the final couple of years of the Green Lantern book, because it was after they changed the title from Green Lantern to Green Lantern Corps. So yeah, I think the book was sort of circling the drain
1: at this point. But I love the artwork. Now, I'm not going to I'm not going to be mean to the Green Lanterns throughout this whole issue. It's just this entry that I'm down on. Uh, I will say that there is an era in here that I dig, and I'm going to talk about in a little bit. That revolving Kilowog that I was a big fan of in, in this particular run. So. Uh, if you want more on Green Lanterns, there's a lot of places you can seek out. Just a couple to mention. There is the uh, Lantern cast done by our friend, little um, Chad Bogleman. And you can also check out, in, in, its, in its closing moments, the Just One of the Guys Green Lantern podcast. It doesn't, doesn't cover this era of Green Lantern, but it was a great show that covered Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. And it's, uh, it's either coming to a close or has already closed by our, our buddy Sean Engel. So check those out. Up next is Guardians of the Universe. Once again, I feel like we've done this over and over. So I guess I will be mean to one more Green Lantern entry. Um, all I'm gonna say art by shocking Joe Staten. The only thing literally that got updated here is that the Guardians have quit and they're um, they're quit and they're getting laid. That's that's really the only thing that's different in here. Uh, in fact, I would tell you, as far as updating it, there's a whole thing in here about Corona causing the creation of the multiverse, and I'll say, guess what, folks? It's post-crisis. You could have updated that part, because I'm just saying there's no multiverse anymore, and there never was. What would you like to say about this entry?
2: I have nothing to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I seriously don't. I don't think I ever, I've ever, i ever read this entry. Ever.
1: Like, even for this podcast? No,
2: just too much text. I don't care about the stupid guardians, so
1: whatever. What you get is you get the guardians in the foreground. In the background, you see their like, little council of, of whatever. Uh, and then you see them hanging out with their Xamaran's getting ready to go get laid. And then they're creating some energy sphere, and that's that's it. So, they're short, they're blue, we're moving on. All right, this, this episode's going to go fast. <laughs> Not really, because we now we're going to talk about Hot Chick. Up next is Hazard drawn by Todd McFarlane and Al Gordon. Now, she is one of the members of the Injustice Unlimited from the Infinity, Inc. era. And uh, I will say, she's yes, A, she's hot, but B, I know how you feel about McFarlane's artwork, and I have to agree in this case, her, the, the length of her legs, the shape of her thighs are ludicrous.
2: Anatomy need not apply.
1: It's pretty true. It's pretty true. Now there is a really cool motif going throughout the whole drawing about of, of dice because dice are her thing. So in the back in the background in the serpent, you've got two dice, and then her her logo is in the shape of dice, which is really clever. So I really dig on that, and uh, I dig on her costume because the the costume look it looks very eighties, very very eighties. However, it still has like the essence. Of her grandfather, which by the way was the gambler, uh, a famous Justice Society villain, the the costume still has like the essence of that uh, steamboat steamboat gambler flair. Yes. So he, yeah. So, I like that. That's a nice nice touch. Um. Okay. So, again, she's gambler. She's a gambler's granddaughter. She has this psionic ability which allows her to affect luck when she's using her dice. She rolls her dice, I guess, and that's what generates her luck. Uh, I didn't know this, but it, it's information in the in the story or in the. Text here that apparently hazard is Old English for the game craps. So I didn't know that.
2: Did not know that.
1: Because you didn't read the entry, did you? Well,
2: uh, why why are you so adversarial (laughs) on these shows? I don't understand it. Okay. Anyway, um, there's tons of things I mention on the Fire and Water that you have no idea, and I don't go after you about it for your lack of education. So I don't understand this.
1: (laughs) It's the source material we're covering. I'm just saying. Anyway, so it's a decent drawing other than the anatomy. Uh, I like her look, and I wish I liked Infinity Ink more. Uh, I don't, though. So anything you want to add about the character?
2: Um, I have to assume that her alter ego, Becky Sharp, is an intentional reference to the character from Vanity Fair by Thackeray. The satirical novel,
1: 1847-1848. Ah, now see, there's something I'm completely clueless about. There we go. See,
2: and I'm just going to let it go, because, you know, <laughs> what the hell?
1: You're the bigger person, you're the, and you're taller, so I have to, you know, give in to you. So if you want more information on the Infinity Anchors, check out the Tales of the JSA podcast with our good friend, Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner. Up next, Hymon. Oh, thank goodness, it's more New Gods characters. Um, actually, we don't have many New Gods characters in the updates. Somebody had said that the, the updates are just rife with characters from Infinity, Inc. and Young All-Stars, and boy, they're right. Uh, there 's just tons you can 't go with it like a foot without tripping over one of these uh, one of the infinity inker characters, so Hyman, who is drawn by Richard Howell and Greg Theakston, and they are doing an excellent job sort of mimicking the Kirby style like at first, I thought it was Kirby, and they did a really really good job of drawing the figure and in the surprint. you 've got him in the foreground he 's got kind of a red outfit with a orangey sort of tunic-y thing And in the background you see him with dark side work on an object you see him being blasted in a circle, which is sort of kirby 's technique whenever he did a who's who entry he would draw panels in the background and then you see him with Orion and this beautiful woman and the deal with Haimon is he is the inventor of the mother box and he's the co-creator of the boom tube i, I didn't even realize how important this guy was and eventually, and when scott free was actually captured the first time Haimon helped him escape so uh, oh he's also I should mention he also has this, this beautiful girl i mentioned that's his daughter Becca who apparently had a love romance with Orion so he's a pretty important character in the history of the New Gods, and it's kind of surprising he didn't get an entry the first time around, now that I read it. And uh, all in all, I, I kind of dug it. What would you think?
2: Uh, this character's always made, made me uncomfortable, because his name sounds a lot like a piece of female anatomy, and it <laughs> bothers me. Um, uh, yeah, this one I just kind of gloss over, because again, it's like, how many more New Gods characters, you know? I, I, yeah.
1: Well, you know, th- the reason I kind of like it, I think, is there's so little of it in the updates. It's almost like uh, refreshing because it's, Mm. you know, oh, oh, it's not another Infinity In character. It's something different. Hooray. So I kind of like it. Now, um, you know, there's another topic that someone needs to start a blog or a podcast on, the the new gods. I don't don't know of anybody in our circle that's doing a new gods thing. Do you? No. No. There you
2: go. Yeah. And it's surprising considering that, you know, they've sort of made their way into various live, you know, maybe not live action, but like. Other media, so it's not yeah. like they're just you know from the comics or anything.
1: Yeah, I mean you could just cover Superpowers cartoons all day long. So. Well, they
2: were in the Superman the animated series. Hey, yeah. the, the Franklins, you need to get on that. Get on that, guys.
1: <laughs> Did you say the Frank guys, though. No, said? the Franklins. Oh, the Franklins. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah.
2: yeah. Okay. Yeah. After they're done talking about Batman, they can talk about Superman the animated series.
1: <laughs> so uh, ne- up next is Hippolyta, or Hippolyte, if you if you will. Uh, however, it's pronounced correctly. We don't have a glossary. We need this. Anyway, um, interesting thing about her, and this is Wonder Woman's mother, is the spelling of her name has actually been changed. This version, which is H-I-P-P-O-L-Y-T-E, turns out that is the original spelling of her name going back to the 1940s. Now, somewhere into the 1960s, the N changed uh, from an E to an A, and it became Hippolyta instead of Hippolyta. Um, and, And at some point, I guess, Perez wanted to switch it back to the original spelling. It didn't last, because eventually she got the A back somewhere in the 80s or 90s. So. But it's interesting, and um, it's a gorgeously rendered picture by George Perez. She's standing there in her purple gown with her black hair. Now, this would be the post-crisis Hippolyta, so she's not blonde anymore. She's got black, kinky hair, just like Wonder Woman. In the background, you see her in her armor, her battle armor, and you see a bunch of uh, Amazons and such. And you get the whole history here. Um, you know, one thing worth noticing is that under Relations, there's no listing for Nubia. Wonder Woman's sister, so that's sad. No Nubia in the post-Crisis universe, and this is the most glaring thing here: is first appearance. It says Wonder Woman, second series, number one. Now, I took some time to go throughout this entire issue and look at this whole first appearance credit because you know there, there's an argument to be had when in the post-Crisis era, what should be a character's first appearance? Should it be their actual first time they ever appeared in a comic, or should it be the first time this version of the character appeared? In a Hippolytus situation, it says Wonder Woman 2nd series number one. So, this is cur- obviously the updated version. This is the one from the Perez area that they're referencing for first appearance. Well, every other reference in this comic, the first appearance is always the pre crisis appearance. Hmm. So, this one is a glaring error. So it, that one just really jumped out at me, so they, they should have stuck with the original numbering. Just to give you a little background on, on the Amazons, Artemis proposed the the idea of creating a race of Amazons to worship the gods. They took the souls of women whose lives were cut short by the ignorance of men. They were, these souls were put into new bodies, and they were given the wisdom of Athena and Artemis' hunting skills and stuff like that. And uh, Hippolyta was the leader of the race, and uh, they, had, they were in Themiscyra and which was not an island. It was a place, I guess, by the Amazon, I believe, if I remember right. And Heracles got all up in their business and it got very nasty and abused them. And uh, eventually they left and went to Paradise Island, which they renamed Themiscyra as well. And so that's where you get to with Warner Roman at this point. So there you go. And um, anything you want to add? It's a
2: beautiful piece. Uh, you know, uh, I, I like that Hippolyta has so much history before you even Get to Wonder Woman Wonder, The birth of Wonder Woman is, is basically the next to last Paragraph mm. Which is kind of nice, it makes her her own character As opposed to her just being the vessel By which Wonder Woman emerges Literally and figuratively So it's like, you know, she's like her own thing And Perez worked really hard to make Hippolyta More like her own character, so I think that All this history before we get to actually Wonder Woman sort of represents that
1: and if I could change anything, I would just say the red doesn't serve as the serpent color very well. Would have, been, would have done better in a darker color so you can make out the level of detail that Perez puts in there. Well, yeah, he goes crazy with these things. He, um, I heard, there's, when we get to the comments, we'll get to somebody who describes his work as over-rendered. And, uh, or overly rendered. And in this case, in the top right area, that might be, that might be true. So. Um, Alright, uh, if you want more on this, you can check out our buddy Frank, Diablo Frank. He has the Wonder Woman podcast. I believe it's called Diana Prince, the New Wonder Woman. He's got uh, that, and it's got a handful of episodes out there. Check it out. Up next is Host. So, um, oh, I'm sorry, no, I misread that. This is actually Baymax from Big Hero 6. Sorry about that. <laughs> Looks just like him, except with a little bit of red. <laughs> if you haven't seen Big Hero 6, you gotta go see it. It's so good. Anyway, so the Host is a Superman villain, I guess you could say. It it gets sort of complicated here. There was a race of aliens um, half a million years ago that lived in South America. And they're called the Hivlerni. I can't even say that. But they're a very technologically advanced race, and they had a bunch of human slaves, and they did this for 10 centuries. And they were in complete isolation, and unfortunately, this left them prone to diseases. So some of the human slaves gave them diseases they weren't prepared to um, biologically defend, you know, with immunity, and 40,000 of these aliens, the Heverlerni, died. So they wiped out all the human slaves, 20 million of these aliens left the earth, and they left behind 500 of them. This is a very complex origin. This is, a, this is really amazing. They must have shoved all this in a Superman. Like, I can't imagine Byrne doing all this in, like, four panels. It's just, you know, all text. Anyway, so the 20 million of them left the 500 behind, and they uploaded these 500 remaining aliens into this 15-foot giant robot. And the robot went into hibernation, waiting for the humans to advance to a point where it would come back out of hibernation. Well, Lois and Clark are on some sort of expedition, and somehow the robot gets uncovered. Uh, the aliens possessed 20 of the people, in the crew, and Superman ended up battling the, the robot and winning. Now, I don't remember if the host ever came back again, because I don't really remember seeing him, but he's a he's a really interesting-looking villain. And uh, in the surprint, you get, it's, it's yellow and blue, and you see different shots of like Superman flying around battling, and you see the aliens, you see the, the, the weird, spacey, sparkly stuff. It's a, it's a pretty cool piece. I like the art. Did I lose you? No. Oh, okay. You got nothing? Okay.
2: <laughs> I love the design. I do not care about the history. Okay. It's
1: really very complex. Yeah. It reminds me when John would go sort of, John Byrne would go sort of overboard with Alpha Flight backstories, and it would be like, oh, boy, there's a lot of words on this page. Yeah, I don't need
2: to know this much about Snowbird. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> no, but great design. Great, great design. And he he was really good at coming up with sort of massive scale villains to fight Superman.
1: Yeah and this is you know this is pretty early on in the in the reboot i mean this is superman number 6 yep so that's pretty early on that he instead of going to the well and pulling out all the villains he was willing to create a new one so if you want more information on in this era of superman uh, definitely head over to from crisis to crisis the podcast with michael bailey talking about superman from crisis on infinite earth going all the way to infinite crisis up next is the hybrid two page splash i would say it's a capow moment um it certainly attempts to be a kapow moment, except it looks like a late '80s DC team, which looks like an imitation Marvel team. It's kind of how I see this. Um, the hybrid is—I oh, don't have a lot of nice things to say. Um, all right, they're a supervillain team. All right, and Steve Dayton, who is the hero, quote unquote hero, Mento, who from the Doom Patrol, you know, he was married to Rita Farr and all this stuff. He got crippled in the Crisis. And he decides it is going to be his thing, maybe just because he's in a wheelchair, he figures it's his obligation to start a new Doom Patrol. So he goes and forms a new Doom Patrol, but he apparently doesn't call them Doom Patrol, he calls them the Hybrid. I don't know exactly why he did that, but he did. And the characters in the Hybrid consist of Behemoth, Gorgon, Harpy, Mento, Prometheus, Pterodon... Uh, Chiraco and Touch and Go, <laughs> very unfortunate name for this cute young girl named Touch and Go. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, it just looks bad. She's wearing anyway. She's very scantily clad. She's really adorable, and her name's Touch and Go. It's just not a good idea. Anyway, so he gathered together these these misfits, these people who have been subjected to various things. There's a lot of questions about whether he's actually subjected them to situations to, co- to cause the powers, but um, he puts many of them under his own mental control. And he's, you know, in theory, I guess he's trying to create a superhero team, but really ends up being a villain team. And uh, also, apparently, when you become a member of the hybrid, you lose all fashion sense. Because these costumes are pretty wretched all the way around. I mean, they're they're certainly hot. I mean, a couple of them, like Touch and Go and uh, Scirocco and Harpy, are are pretty smoking hot. However, the costumes are just kind of nuts. I mean, look at uh, Gorgon. Harpy's costume, I can't believe, wasn't designed by Mike Grell. Well, Harpy's costume looks pretty much like Vampirella's. You it's know, so minimal, not... yeah. Yeah, which, God bless her. Love her to death. Apparently, her and Gorgon are actually married, so I don't know how I would feel about my wife running around in that. Actually, I guess I would be pretty happy about it. But Anyway, um, now there's a bit of a crossover in this, because the, the hybrid were a new Teen Titans characters... But they did cross over into Blue Beetle a little bit, and given the, the bad taste they left in my mouth, I'm wondering if Len Wein was just feeling sorry for Marv Wolfman or something, and just let him bum, bum a couple issues of Blue Beetle. But that's where you get the Prometheum character, because or is it Prometheus, I guess, because they had introduced this metal called Prometheum in the Blue Beetle books, which is basically kind of like a magic metal that does whatever you want it to. But at the end of the day, it's a supervillain team. They really put a lot of effort in there to make them diverse. You've got a big guy, you've got a weird-looking guy, you've got a guy who's made of metal, you've got somebody who flies, you've got somebody who shoots energy beams. I mean, they they really went for the 80s stereotypical template of different, you know, ethnicities and different types of characters and and, and sexes and stuff like that. But it it just doesn't uh, capture the the imagination, I guess is the best way to put it. However, if you want more information on the Doom Patrol... um, Oh, because, again, he was originally forming Doom Patrol, but ended up in Titans. But anyway, uh, a good place for information on Doom Patrol is check out our buddy Doug Zouich's Doom Patrol blog, which is MyGreatestAdventure80.blogspot.com. Or you can check out the podcast, Waiting for Doom... And uh, also, uh, since there's a lot of new Teen Titan stuff in this, too, you might want to check out Pop Culture Affidavit, which is Tom Panarese's uh, podcast and blog. He had a whole segment called My Life as a Teen Titan, which probably touches on some of this. Or you can even go over to our buddy Tim Wallace's Court Industries, since Blue Beetle plays a role in this as well. Whew, a lot of places you can go find more information about this lousy team. <laughs> I, I don't remember. I, I've actually read some stories with them. I have no fond memories of them. Do you remember them at all?
2: No, I, I abandoned the Teen Titans by the time Perez was off the book.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Fair enough. Up next, the bane of my Who's Who existence, Ian Carcool himself. Uh, there's a few things about Who's Who that always get under my skin. Uh, one is hearing about people going between Earth 2 and Earth X. It's overly excessive. The other is Ian Carcool being referenced as to why JSAers have remained young. And here is his entry himself. Um, and that's really his only footnote in history is that. Yes, his death caused a bunch of energy to go flying out, which gave the JSA members extra life-extending powers. Now, there is some interesting stuff in here. I mean, he did fight Dr. Fate. He did fight Wotan, or Wotan was involved in it. It was kind of neat, and there was this whole big plot to kill the next eight presidents of the United States when they were young. So that was kind of a neat story. That's
2: a great story. That's All-Star Squadron Annual Number 3. That's a
1: great story. It's pretty cool how they go out and try and kill all the, the future presidents when they're young to change history. And at the very end, you find out that they did succeed in killing one of them. Yeah. And the theory is that would be the next president. So I guess uh, All-Star Squadron, annual number three, that's probably when Reagan was in office.
2: Yeah, so they're talking about Bush, which, of course, doesn't make sense because Bush was vice president. So.
1: Well, I, I guess what they're saying then is there was a Democrat who was going to beat him, but he, they, but he died. instead.
2: Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay.
1: okay. Yeah. So he never came to be. So that's what they're saying is how history works. But anyway, cool idea in that. So, um, and this this was done, well, the art here, you've got Ian Carcool in the foreground, and he's kind of in a green sleeveless outfit. He's, he's got kind of like I Dream a Genie on, outfit on, actually, and he's bald, and in the background you see some of um, the other JSA villains, you see a bunch of shadow creatures, and him as an energy being in the JSA. It's a nice looking piece. I, I imagine a lot of people were interested in drawing it. In fact, I imagine people were dying to draw this entry. Uh, um, you know... <laughs> but it was drawn instead by Greg Brooks.
2: Yes, we should stop with the murderer Greg Brooks jokes, because I learned that he's actually out of prison, so he might come hunt us down and kill us. So okay.
1: Us, I think this is a great piece. This is a gorgeous piece by the accomplished artist Greg Brooks.
2: <laughs> Better Next. than Brian Bolland. <laughs>
1: um, Tales of, And by the way, you find out more about Ian Carcool on Tales of the JSA. They did a nice... Uh, Coverage of that All Star Squadron annual. By
2: the team, way, so. this listing I think has to have the single number greatest number of cross references all in one shot. Because it oh, yeah. says it says see Adam One, Flash One, GL one, Hawk Girl 1, Hawkman 1, Hourman Man One, Johnny Thunder 1, Sandman 1, <laughs>
1: <Man laughs> <laughs>
2: Like they were committed to it, but I'm sure at some point they, they're they typesetting it like, oh for God's sakes.
1: Sure, give it up. Just give it up, guys. Up next is the Icicle, yeah, done by again Todd McFarlane and Al Gordon. Now I will say, of all of Todd's pieces, I like this one, actually. His proportions are not as off, maybe the width of his thighs. But other than that, his proportions are not that out of whack. And Icicle looks pretty cool. He looks very Jack Frost-ish in this. And this is the this is the second Icicle, by the way. Icicle 2, Electric Boogaloo. He is the JSA foe, uh, specifically from the Injustice Unlimited group. And, uh, and now the only thing here is there is a bit of a mix-up. Under his left arm, where it should have been Red Surprint, there's actually a black spot. Yeah, oops. So somebody mixed up on the coloring there. But uh, what do you think of the art in this piece?
2: Uh, McFarlane's artistic sins are least obvious with this piece. Let us let me put it that way.
1: That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Behind him, you've got uh, lots of ice, you know, as stalactites and stalagmites. You see underneath him uh, little images of the Injustice Unlimited gang all there together. We'll talk about them in just a moment. The background talks about how they captured Ice Maiden from the Glo- Global Guardians, and she became his love slave. Which is pretty terrible. And um, if I recall correctly, they talk about here his, his history is uh, shrouded in mystery. And if I recall correctly, they do eventually reveal that he was the son of Iska-1. I think is what, how, they, how this went down. And he was romantically involved with somebody. And I don't, I don't know who it was. Was it... um. The second, the second generation Huntress or Tigress, maybe. I don't remember. Yeah, you're not very helpful. Okay. Anyway, um, his costume, by the way, it, it, he's he's all in white, and he's got the white pointy hat, and white hair, and white skin, and he's he's got the you know the sort of frosty collar and frosty boots and stuff like that. So he looks very Jack Frostish. So I like it. And again, if you want more information on Infinity Inc. type folks, check out the Tales of the JSA podcast. And um, I dig the uh, logo, Ice Skull. Looks really nice. Okay. You don't like that? No. It it was probably Todd Klein. Does that help? He can have his off days. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. You think it was a font? Anyway.
2: (laughs) No, it's just just not even worth talking about.
1: (laughs) Okay. Up
2: next is... We have, uh, Shag, we have 37 more Infinity Inc. listings to get through. Please, let's that's just true.
1: move on. We'll pick up the pace. Speaking of Infinity Inc. listings...
2: Oh, we have, God.
1: Well done, sir. We have reached the two-page splash for Infinity Inc. Oh, itself. They
2: are the Omega Men of this iteration of Who's Who. Yes,
1: they are. They Well, you know what? I thought about this a lot. Who shows up a lot in the updates is Infinity Inc. people and uh, Young All-Stars people, which, by the way, are both written by Roy Thomas. And it's interesting to note that maybe they have so many entries because they were busy creating new characters. Right, well, and a lot of their histories got changed. All the Earth 2
2: characters got affected the most by the crisis, so it made sense.
1: Yeah, but, but I go back to a lot of the villains and stuff like that that like introduced Hazard and you know, new characters like that. Maybe the other books weren't creating enough new characters. Maybe they were recycling old characters too much. Something to think about. Maybe there's a little more creativity going on over there. Not saying it was good creativity, but it was there. <laughs> All right. Infinity Inc. So, um, I'm just, it's by Vince Argon, uh, Argendesa, uh, or And, uh, it's fine, but I'm going to say, unfortunately, this is a revised version. And the previous version was drawn by Jerry Ordway. Yeah. No matter what Vince drew, and maybe that's why it's only okay, because Vince can draw better than this. So we've seen some really nice Vince pieces. It could be that Vince just knew there's no competing. So he's like, all right, I'm not even going to try. Um, but it's, you know, you get your characters, Brainwave, Dr. Midnight, Fury 2, Hourman 2, Jade, Northwind, Nuclon, Obsidian, Power Girl, Silver Scarab, Skyman, and Wildcat 2. Um, the text piece frustrates me. It's very encyclopedic. It's all about like the status of this character and this. Th- then this person joined the team, and this is what this character did. So, and, and Roy Thomas is not listed as any of the contributing authors to this issue, which, by the way, is, is a shame, considering how many of his characters were in here. So i got to think this was written by somebody else, which would explain the the very status-like. you know, It's almost like you know, a Facebook status updates here. And uh, again, I want to love this team. I really do. But I think the concept's stronger than the reality of the produced work, unfortunately. There's some nice mentions in here about Solomon Grundy, though, and, how, and Mr. Bones joining the team, which is, kind of, which is kind of a clever idea, having a bad guy end up joining the team. And, uh, and then they talk about how Northwind's off the team, which is nice.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, again,
1: much like with Teen Titans, I had given up the book by this point. I tried to read it recently. Um, I, I, I got my hands on Infinity, Inc., and I probably made it through about issue seven or eight. And I just petered out. And It wasn't because I like I just lost interest. It just wasn't holding my attention well enough. So, but I understand the first twelve is it? That's great. Or first ten? What is it? Oh, so the first ten are tremendous. So, I, unfortunately, they didn't hold my attention. So I'm worried about what issue thirty is mm-hmm. going to be like. Mm-hmm. You know. So, all right. Up next is Injustice. I'm sorry. <clears throat> That's easier to uh, say or harder to say than it looks like. Injustice Unlimited. Art by Jerome K. Moore and Carl Kiesel. And my friends, this is how you do it. This is a great-looking page. Um, You know, in last issue, we picked on Artemis for the way Todd McFarlane had drawn her proportions. Just a minute ago, we picked on Hazard. And let me tell you, they look great here. They look super sexy. It shows you that when they're drawn in the right proportions, they look great. You get the whole team, Artemis, Fiddler. Hazard, Icicle 2, Shade, and the Wizard. And what does this drawing tell you, Rob? That's right. This drawing tells me there's one too many top hats on this team. (laughs) Somebody needs to fix that. They get like a bulk cleaning rate at the... (laughs) But well, uh again just I love this artwork. I think it's gorgeous. They're all standing upon this uh, like rocky crag and we're looking up at them and there's some clever lighting and they just look totally badass. I mean, they could actually pull off being a hero team with the way the the heroic, you know, the how great this artwork is. And uh, the the text eh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the text, but we've read all this by now by reading Artemis's entry and Hazard's entry and Ice Girl's entry. I mean, we there's nothing new in this text, so it, I I didn't focus a lot on it um i don't know anything else you want to say about it
2: it's a really compelling image i mean again it's it's uh, i really like drone k Moore's work i think he's kind of like an, one of the underrated guys yeah it, it makes a team that's consisting of a lot of morts look really cool and i'm not going to say imposing but it it it, it gives this team some extra oomph. I mean, it took a, it took some thought to put him mm-hmm. in this pose, and uh, certainly the effort to give him all that up angle. And I love the way the shade is standing off to the side, looking almost standoff. It's a really nice image. It's a yeah. really, really nice image.
1: Yeah, it's good stuff. And again, tales of JSA more for your, for more of these characters. Uh, I'm going to stop saying that because it's just it's going to be every character in a minute here. But up next, Iron Monroe, one of my favorites drawn by Howard Simpson and Malcolm Jones III. This is a young All-Stars character who is the analog for Superman. So when you take Superman out of, of uh, Earth 2, you replace him with Iron Man Roe. It was kind of their effort of the young All-Stars. At this point, again, issue number five is on the shelf, so it's very early on. They, in fact, they talk in here, they say that his origin is uh, shrouded in mystery. It won't be for quite a while that we find out that his origin is directly tied to the Philip Wiley book, Gladiator which is a great book. If you've never read it, go find it. It's published in, like, 1935, and it's basically the pre-crisis uh, Earth to Superman. His, his story on Earth It's is really good. And, you know, supposedly it is, uh, Siegel and Schuster was their inspiration, and there's lots of different opinions on that, but I love in the Surprint, since he is the analog for Superman, you see him lifting a car and smashing it, sort of a, in tribute to Action Comics number one. Uh, you, it, it's a his look is he's wearing like a black muscle t-shirt. He's got white <laughs> white shorts and white shoes on. He looks almost like a sailor with that. And then his hair is like black but he's got a white sort of skunk streak up the middle. And he's happy. He's running right at the camera. And uh the serpent, in addition to seeing with the car you see him lifting an elephant, you see him with the young all-stars and you see like all kinds of like rocks breaking and stuff like that. What do you
2: think? Yeah, it's alright. <gasps> really? Yeah. I said before these young all-star
1: characters. I gave them a shot, and it just they just didn't they just didn't do it for me. And I gotta tell you, I think it's the writing, not the characters. I think the characters are interesting. They have I, I think the characters have an interesting look. I, I just think the crisis. The issues, the issues weren't that good. I just think the
2: crisis just dealt Roy Thomas a body blow that he just couldn't get past. And it has nothing to do with him. I'm a big <laughs> fan of his stuff. I just think it, they were just trying desperately to to. to Reconcile Roy Thomas's passion For the Earth 2 characters With the post-crisis continuity And you just couldn't, you couldn't do it
1: Well, and I, w- I would agree with you From the way The issues read But again, character concepts And the, and the way they look And stuff like that, I, think it's a, I still think it's a win I'm, I'm, You're not going to sway me there I'm trying to This character showed up later in the 90s uh, I want to say in the Damage comic actually As an adult, which was kind of cool and I will say I can't stand the logo. Don't like See now I like the logo. Really? <laughs> yes. Ugh, can't stand it. Can't stand it. So, all right, up next, the Jihad. This is a suicide squad group of foes. And it's interesting. I think the artwork may have been originally intended to be bigger, but there was so much text they had to kind of cram it together and make it smaller. So you've get the characters here of um and this is by the way, this is a as the name suggests, a group of villains, uh, terrorists from, I guess third world countries, or Middle East, or whatever you want to describe it. It's very 1980s sort of setup, but you get uh, Chimera, Jin, which is like with a D like the genie, uh, Jakuli, Manticore, Ravan, and Rustam. And this is uh, was in the early days of Suicide Squad. I think issue number two is when they first appeared. Or is it issue number one? Issue number issue one. Issue number I'm sorry. one, yeah. And they continued to be a thorn in the side of the Suicide Squad for a while. In fact, one of these guys, I want to say, was... So, Ravon or Rustam actually joined the Suicide Squad for a while? I can't remember. I think it was Ravon. But anyway, um, pretty cool characters. And, they, be, you know, again, it gives you sort of the international flavor of what's going on. Secretly, you find out that Chimera is actually, um, wasn't it Nightshade, I think is who it was, in disguise?
2: Oh, really? I didn't know
1: that. Yeah, I'm having to look it up here again. Uh, yes, actually, Nightshade, who had infiltrated the team. And you see in the background their base, uh, I believe it was called Jutenheim. How do you say that word? You know, the, it's, a, it's an old word. Jontenheim. Jontenheim. Anyway, it's, it's really cool. It's built into the side of a mountain and sort of goes up at an angle. It's really a, a neat architecturally. And uh, it's, it was a pretty cool team. I mean, Suicide Squad was great. Have if you, if you ever read the Suicide Squad?
2: I read, again, another thing. I think I read, like, the first six, and then I just sort of bailed on it.
1: Oh, such a good book. That is one definitely worth revisiting. And now's the perfect time. When you start to become disenfranchised with modern comics... Go back to an area you enjoyed and read a book you never read. That's my take on this. All right. So, Suicide Squad is definitely one worth checking out. And if you want more on Suicide Squad, um, check out uh, Aaron Head Moss's Task Force X podcast. By the way, I didn't even mention the artist Luke McDonald and Carl Kiesel. So, who did the Suicide Well, uh, Luke McDonald did the Suicide Squad book, so it's you know, right in the flavor of the series. And the series was still pretty new at this point.
2: I love the Zipatone effect on the, the Jin character. Mm. Jin. I think that's a really, really nice little effect.
1: His face is really weird, though. He looks like a little little pirate goblin, you know? And he actually, uh, if I'm remembering right, he gets fried or dead or whatever because he's really out of a computer. I think he's replaced by a Firestorm villain that you're going to meet in a couple of months named Mindboggler, if I'm remembering all this right.
2: Oh, Mindboggler, right.
1: (laughs) You mocking my Firestorm foes? No, I'm just
2: waiting what what episode of Flash uh, that character appears in.
1: Oh, that's bound to happen, no doubt about that. All right, up next, John Constantine or Constantine, uh, drawn by no one apparently. Yes. So, I'm maybe beset. What do you think? It's not.
2: No, I. I think it.
1: Could be Rick Veitch himself.
2: It looks a little like Steve Dillon, but inked by somebody else. But I just—I don't know. I tried to look it up, but I could not find it. So Steve, I...
1: this would be really early for Steve Dillon. Well, though, Steve Dillon did,
2: did a did a listing in the
1: original Who's Who series, right? And I think that was his first American work. Well, right. Now he was drawn AD by this point. But um, I don't. I think it was 2008. AD. But I, I guess it could be. Yeah, it does look a little like Steve Dillon, but but you know. not inked by him.
2: So yeah, I don't. I said I, I look. I tried to look it up, but I could not find the listing. So I mean, couldn't find you know any credit. So
1: that would be interesting if it was Steve Dillon because he would go on to draw the Hellblazer series years later.
2: Yeah, so. that's, well, that's what makes me think it it is him. But
1: I, yeah. again, I don't know. I love his occupation, world saver. <laughs> Um, the, the interesting thing about John Constantine back then was his mystique. He he was mysterious. And at this point, and you're going to laugh, but I would say the closest thing you had to the mystique level that Constantine had at this point w- was over at Marvel was probably Wolverine. Um, and I, it, the, the comparison is probably gagging you. But back then, in the, in the in mid-'80s, you know, everyone wanted to know Wolverine's history. We, you know Wolverine was shrouded in mystery. And we'd find out little tidbits more and be like, oh, wow, he's been alive for how long? You know, those kind of things. And Constantine was that way too. We didn't know anything about his backstory. We didn't know who he was, where he came from. It's like all of a sudden he appears, and what he had a romantic relationship with ten years ago. We never knew about what. So um, that's my take on that. He's just really interesting. And, and once that mystique starts to wear off, the characters start to become a little more commonplace. Which is where I think John, we all kind of took him for granted after Hellblazer had two hundred plus issues, <laughs> you know. And I mean, I, even I stopped reading. I mean, I started reading the Garth Ennis run, and I hung around for I don't know. Five years, whatever, something. But even I kind of like, okay, well, John's gonna meet somebody. Uh, it's gonna be weird. Everyone that he befriends is gonna get murdered. Uh, he's gonna get a girlfriend. Oh, she's gonna die tragically. Oh, God, this is killing me. Uh, after, after seeing it happen for a while and like, getting invested in characters and knowing that nothing good's gonna happen to him, just starts to break your heart a little too much. So, and um, it, it, one thing that's not in this entry is there's no mention of how much of a jerk he is. Because, you know, Constantine, that's one of his trademarks is he's, he's a jerk. I mean, as you put it on a couple of different things where, you know, he's the smartest guy in the room that you don't like, but you have to respect because he's the smartest guy in the room. Um, the, there's no mention of that at all. You don't get a sense for his personality at all in the description. Hmm. Now, did he first premiere with Alan Moore or with Rick Veach?
2: Alan, Alan Moore. Okay.
1: All right. Because, okay. I
2: mean, the scene that they're showing him, him being sitting around the table with the other sorcerers, <laughs> that's from Alan Moore.
1: So, okay, yeah gotcha all right and uh now you know interestingly enough, you know he had his own he had his he's had a million series and he's had a his own t v show and everything and a movie, and, and a movie and there's nobody in our little circle of friends that I know of that's running a Constantine podcaster blog um there are certainly Constantine podcasts and blogs out there, especially dedicated to the t v show, but nobody that I know of in our little cluster of uh family of uh you know podcasters, so maybe somebody should do something with that <clears throat> Emily Milton. Just saying Alright uh, Up next is The kapow moment of the There we initiative. go Finally <laughs> It is Justice League Boom Kevin Maguire Picture Which honestly I almost wish they had Just dropped the text And gave me a full Two page spread of this picture Because it's so gorgeous This is Kevin Maguire drawing Not just And Terry Austin and Terry Austin, I'm sorry. Not just drawing the Justice League International-type era, but he's drawing the entire Justice League. And as it should be, up front, in the center, are the two most representative members of the Justice League, Gypsy and Creeper. It's perfect. <laughs> um, what the huh? Creeper? What, what the huh? It even talks about in the intro. Creeper had just joined the Justice League. <laughs> no, he didn't. No, he didn't. That, that's a stretch. Yeah. Well, clearly what happened there was he was going to join. Like uh, Giffen and Demattis had planned for him to join, probably, and then something changed, and so they went a different direction. Because they talk about him sort of joining just recently, and around the same time they start t- talking about it. Um, you know, the the current Justice League and, and the international. Do they do they get into the international aspect of it? They, they they hint at it, but they don't actually call it Justice League International in the entry. But so I think yeah, were, mentions help grant them international diplomatic status. Yeah, and, and Giffen and Demattis have talked about this before. How they used to get plans to. To add characters to the series, and then by the time they got around to finally adding them, something had changed. They'd have to change direction, and I think that's one of these cases. It's just kind of funny that Creeper got the front spot right next to Superman. So uh, beautiful drawing. Everyone is gorgeously rendered. Uh, It's one of the few chances I've gotten to see, you know, uh, Maguire draw Firestorm. He looks totally awesome. I I dig his Aquaman. Yep. You know, and of course all the JLI characters, like you know, Mister Miracle and and Guy Gardner and uh, Captain Marvel and. Booster Gold and all them look great. Vibe looks totally badass. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous picture. Now, in the text, there's absolutely no mention in the whole thing of Superman or Wonder Woman, which would be correct in post-crisis. However, um, Superman is in the drawing. In fact, he's the center person of the drawing. Yep. So it sort of suggests that Superman's still integral to the Justice League, and yet he's not mentioned at all. I don't know whether maybe they hadn't decided at that point or something. I'm not sure. And they do credit him in the in the little heads as Superman 2. So apparently we're still sticking from the Who's Who Volume 1, you know, designations.
2: And it mentions Batman 2 as well.
1: Yeah, good point. Yeah. And they don't even need to do that anymore because nope. now they've they've had the update yep. with Batman. So um just beautiful piece. I could stare at this thing all day. I would love a poster of this. Now I, I have some, you know, they've distributed lots of Kevin McGuire. JLA, because I mean, he was famous for doing this this JLA pose, or Justice League pose, you know. In fact, I've got a, a great little poster from the Justice League source book from, the, from uh, one of the role-playing games, and it had a poster of McGuire Justice League, kind of similar to this, but this is just a beautiful one. I'd love to have this as a thing. Mm. So you, um, if, for more information on the Justice League, I know a guy who used to run a blog called the Justice League Satellite Blog. He uh, used to cover the entire Silver Age of the Justice League. And then you said there's something else in the wings. I guess somebody
2: else is working on a podcast. Yep. So I don't want to say who it is in case they, you know, they don't right. want me to reveal it. Yeah, no, I love this piece. I love that Maguire fits in so much characterization, even though everybody's just standing around. Like you see, Hawkman. It looks like Hawkman and Hawk Girl are, are holding hands, but you can't quite tell. Mm-hmm. But it's very dignified. But it did, but on the other side of it, Green Arrow and Black Canary are hugging each other. Which is really sweet. Vibe is doing his stupid badass thing that he does. (laughs) The Adam is being friendly. Batman is setting off into the background. It's it's wonderful. But yeah, I was pretty disappointed with the previous Justice League entry, the one by McDonald and Ray. Oh yeah. Um, But this one really delivers the goods. So and it is great to see all the characters from all the different eras because you never get to see them all together. Right. You know. Um, So that's really great. Although I will have to take issue with some of the text, and then it goes out of its way to take a swipe at Aquaman. It says, participation in League emergencies varied over the years as individual heroes were called away by crises of more personal natures. At one low point in the group effort, Aquaman, the only active founding member, enacted a clause in the bylaws and disbanded the Justice League. Well, thanks, guys. You really had to just
1: get that in there. Well, no, I, th- I think that's fair, though. I mean, it, it was the low point. Not. I not, know, but... It, you're they're, not, just... they're not calling Justice League Detroit a low point. What they're saying is there was the war with Mars, and nobody showed up. I know, but, uh, you know, it just feels a little, like... <laughs> had to get I, I, th- I think it's fair, and I think you're a little too close to the issue, perhaps. Maybe on this. Quite possible. possible. Now, Rocket Red's in here, by the way. I just realized, and I don't think he'd been added to the team yet. If I'm, I i can not remember what issue he joined, but I'm pretty sure it was after they reached international status. He hmm. joined in number seven. So, so in, in number yeah. in, number six is only on, is on the shelf right now. Yeah.
2: Well, they're,
0: yeah, they're yeah
1: okay. All right, up next is Kalki, Maybe I'm not really sure how to say that. Um, really. Interesting character. I'm fascinated by this character. It's drawn by Steve Lytle. This is a Doom Patrol villain who actually would have been on the shelves this month because he's from Doom Patrol number one, and Doom Patrol number one just came out this month. In fact, I think Doom Patrol number one comes out after this Who's Who issue, so if you'd read the Who's issue, you'd be like, you know, I already know what's going to happen in the comic. Um, It's a Paul Kupperberg character from Doom Patrol, and Paul was also one of the um, contributing writers to this, so I gotta assume he wrote it, and it's really well written. It's really fascinating. This character, whose real name, is uh, Ash Ashok Desai? Maybe you know. I'm totally slaughtering that name. I think,
2: that name. Know, I think that's star.
1: right. He was actually friends with the chief, Niles Calder, and uh, he had a daughter who actually grows up to be Celsius, the leader of the New Doom Patrol. And he's a genius, and he he gains these powers and becomes. Uh, he thinks of himself as like a Hindu god, and his body becomes very misshapen, and he gets these like mechanical limbs to help him deal with stuff. Um, oh, geez, I. I um, I didn't write down a lot of details, but he's very, very powerful. And he's got this one, like, scythe, almost animal-insect kind of arm. Really was an interesting character. It's definitely worth ta- taking your time to read this stuff. And I you know, per- and I love the art. I mean, you've got it's by Steve Lytle. And in the foreground, you've got the, the character who, as I described, in a lot of green. In the bottom, you can see Celsius. You can see Robot Man. You can see the chief. You can see this guy as, as he's suffering in pain. And it's a really well-rendered piece. And the, and the logo is pretty cool and pretty boss. Now, I don't remember people expressing a lot of love for this era of the Doom Patrol, which I've never read. I'm, I'd am i be willing to give this a shot. You know, 1987 superhero comic books, you know, maybe this is worth – I know Eric L- Steve Lytle drew some of them. Eric Larson drew some of them. Did you ever read the Doom Patrol? I did. Uh, it came just before the Grant
2: Morrison run.
1: Yes. That's, so that was, was think, issue 19. Yeah, I
2: think two. that's why people don't recall this one as much because it just is in the shadow of a much more famous run. Sort of like the um, – you know, the Swamp Thing comic – uh, before Alan Moore took over, was pretty darn good. It's just yeah. it wasn't Alan Moore, so that's why mm-hmm. you know Martin Pascoe and uh, Tom Yates did it, and it was really good. You know, Tom really Yates really. Drew it. Yeah,
1: Tom Yates, an amazing it's, artist.
2: Yes, it was really really good, but it just you know it just got eclipsed by something so much more famous. So yeah, no this I remember buying this comic at the time. I thought it was pretty good.
1: I may have to I may have to track that down and check it out. It looks good. Again, uh, Doom Patrol fans, check out Doug Zuiza's, um... My Greatest Adventure 80 blog, and also check out the Waiting for Doom podcast, which well, I do all, in, in full disclosure, I haven't started listening to Waiting for Doom. However, we are intersecting with them now. I don't know if you've noticed on the internet we keep bumping into those guys, and uh, I'm, I'm ready to jump in and check out their show. I hear it's great. So, All right, up next is Canto, a new god assassin drawn again by, uh, this one's by Richard Howell and Greg Theakston. Not as dead on of a Kirby Style image as the previous one we looked at a few uh, pages ago, but it's still pretty good. I mean, Thixton brings the Kirby ask. I mean, he inked Kirby for a long time. You really get a sense there's a lot of Kirby lines and, and and you know Kirby tech kind of stuff going on here. But it's it's missing something in the figure. That's uh, missing a Kirby essence in the figure. But that's okay. It's still nice. He's an interesting character in that he dresses like he's from the Italian Renaissance with some Kirby flair. It's probably the best way to describe him. And he, he dressed, and he specifically focused on the Italian Renaissance because, as an assassin, he was fascinated by the complex political intrigue of that era, which I think is kind of cool. I mean, Kirby had some of the most amazing, cool ideas for the New Gods that took me forever to appreciate. That's a neat idea because, I mean, that era is known for the political intrigue, and an assassin would be fascinated with that. So uh, he, he's a brilliant strategist, and he apparently was so impressed with Mr. Miracle that he actually let Mr. Miracle escape one time out of respect. Uh, for, uh, what an <laughs> That's a neat name. idea. Yeah, it's very cool. So, neat stuff in the foreground. You know, he's coming at you, kind of smiling. And you see him in the back, sort of facing off against Mister Miracle and Barda. And actually, Mister Miracle's kind of holding Barda back. Then you see him shooting a bunch of bombs at Mister Miracle while he's strapped up. And you see Barda, like he's just taking her down. And then you see a giant explosion, and he's like around the corner as he's caused an assassination of some sort. It's a decent looking piece. Yeah, it's okay. It's it's all right. It's about as boring as you can get.
2: Yeah, I, I, um, there was a Mister Miracle special done around this time, drawn by Steve Rood. Ooh. And, I mean, you know, it's 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 too easy to say, well, this would have been better if it was drawn by Steve Rude. Well, hell, yeah, anything would be. <laughs> Every um, entry would have been. Yeah, any entry would be. But it, that was a really good Mr. Miracle story. And it's like, I kind of think this character, unlike some other New Gods ones, I think maybe has some more potential. Here, to me, he just looks just sort of pro forma and kind of dull. But I, I would be open to seeing him, you know, maybe done by somebody else. Because I, I like everything that... You know, they talk about it. So, that idea that he's interested in history, like, that's that's, that's neat. It's not something you hear about,
1: you know, really with most characters. You mentioned the Mr. Miracle special. There was also a Mr. Miracle ongoing series uh, around this time that I actually bought. It was, um, that was probably my first time I came. I'm getting all squeaky. Uh, really,
2: really. What's going on over
1: there? I don't know. The first time I started reading any New Gods type thing. And I loved that series. I, um, I can't remember. Who was the artist on that? It was so good. Joe Phillips. Um, Joe Phillips drew the, some of that Mr. Miracle, and I just love the heck out of it. And Joe, actually, Joe's out there on Facebook, by the way, nowadays, drawing some pretty cool stuff, so you should check him out. Um, Alright, up next is Kat Matui. So this is another one of the Green Lantern characters, and I'm going to be more favorable on this one, partially because she's hot. Uh, drawn by Joe Staten, and this is the first entry I've seen by Staten in a while where it looks like he's trying to draw it straight. You know, he's not trying to go for goofy animal. He's not trying to draw that Green Lantern Corps style he has. There's a lot more kind of scratchy edge look to it. Um, it and maybe he, that's what it is. Maybe he was going for the sex appeal, so he tried differently on this one. I don't know. But it looks nice. Um, she looks like a, a a stout woman, maybe. I don't know. She, I mean, she's not heavy or anything, but she's got some birthing hips there, the way you draw her. She's, uh, but she, <laughs> she's 5'11", 131. That's pretty damn thin true, but the way he's drawn her, and maybe it's because it's an upshot, like we're on the ground looking up at her, he just, he gave her some proportions that are, are... anyway, she's a beautiful woman, she is John Stewart's wife, and uh, interesting history on her, she's, um, she was gonna, she was a Green Lantern, and she was gonna leave the Corps, because she fell in love, and the, the Guardian sent Hal Jordan to her, to convince her not to leave the Corps, and she realized that she loved the Corps more than she loved this guy, so she stayed with the Corps. Then, Years later, Hal leaves the Corps for love. And she is seriously pissed. Like, she was seriously angry. She was not going to forgive him. Well, fate intervened because Hal's replacement was John Stewart. And she was assigned to train John Stewart. And, of course, uh, they fell in love and got married and ha- lived happily ever after. And nothing bad ever happened to her. So, wait, no, that's not true. Did she, did she die or was she murdered? I can't remember.
2: I have no idea.
1: Okay. She's dead. Dead, okay. dead, dead. Right. Which is a shame. And she's red, by the way. She is uh she's from <laughs> okay. Sinestra's planet. Oh, okay. she, she replaced Sinestro as the Green Lantern of, of his world. So it's all woven together, that whole Green Lantern tapestry, you know. Three thousand six hundred GLs, and apparently we only focus on eight of them. So Up next is Kilgore, I guess is how you say it. It's kinda hard to pronounce a name when there's a percent sign in the middle of it. But I'm go I'm gonna go with Kilgore. And to, to give you the short version of Kilgore, he is Warlock from the New Mutants. That's what it all boils down to. Interesting looking character though. Uh, it's drawn by Jackson Juice or Geis, sorry, and Jack Torrance. And uh, it, this is a flash foe from the early Wally West era. And he is a described as an electro mechanical organic intelligence. Again, he's Warlock, and uh, he he got he came to Earth and he got all wired into the electrical systems of our country, and was going to take over North America. He planned to wipe out all the humans, but the Flash was able to stop him. It's an interesting, drawing, I, this is not the way I've seen Kilgore typically drawn. When I see Kilgore drawn, he looks more, a little more humanoid. Here he looks like sort of a barrel-chested, almost R2-D2 with two different kind of feet. Do, do you remember this character at all? I do, because I was buying Flash at this time. So
2: yeah, I, I do, I do remember. I mean, I don't remember it that much, but I, you know.
1: What is up within the surprint? Wally is looking at a TV monitor and there's like a cartoon character yelling at him. What is, yeah. what is that? I have
2: no idea. <laughs> I forget.
1: Okay. I just have to assume that Kilgore took control of some animated show or something, and that's how he's communicating with Wally, would be my guess. But, uh, it, yeah, it, I is,
2: mean, it, it said that Kilgore was able to integrate his intelligence into the entire electrical network of North America. So I think he was like taking over a TV show or something like that, I think.
1: Yeah, and I thought I had read these early Flash issues, but I may never got around to it. I think I own them, but he, um, he it, again, just screams Warlock. So Anyway, if you want more information on Kilgore, check out the Speed Force, which is a great website run by our buddy Kelson, or check out the Flash podcast. I don't know if they're going to actually touch on Kilgore specifically, but they do touch on a lot of Flash topics. Up next is my favorite Joe Staten entry of the book, Kilowog. Sort of uh, interesting, the, the logo is so tiny for such a big character. Maybe that's to make the character look bigger. I'm not sure. But Kilowog is one of my favorite Green Lanterns. I love him in this area. This is actually this is a slightly different Kilowog than you might expect. This is prior to him becoming the Green Lantern drill sergeant. Um, he, he, he's a giant sort of misunderstood guy. He looks identical. His look hasn't changed. He still looks like a mixture between like a pig or a warthog or something like that. But his planet was destroyed in the crisis, and he ended up coming to Earth with the rest of the GLs, and when he came to Earth, he had a hard time understanding, like, the, the, the economics and political boundaries of our planet. So he ends up in the Soviet Union and helps them design the Rocket Reds because he's just trying to help. And he's really good with machines. So the reason the Rocket Red program was so successful in the Soviet Union was because of Kilowog. And that's actually the Green Lantern and choose i read. Uh, maybe I was a commie pinko when I was a kid, I don't know, but I was fascinated by those covers by Joe Staden of Kilowog helping the Russians uh, or Soviets, and so I bought those issues and I really enjoyed the heck out of them. And I thought Kilowog was a great character, I, I dug the Red Rocket Reds, I enjoyed those quite a bit. Um, so the only thing I, I t- took, it, uh, took issue with is in throughout the entry it does refer to them as Russians rather than Soviets, so I thought that was kind of wrong. What do you think?
2: Why, why is it wrong?
1: Well, they were – it was the Soviet Union at this point, in 87. Well,
2: yeah, okay. Uh, okay.
1: Yeah. Isn't Russians all – never mind. Uh, well, Russia was a country within the Soviet
2: Union. Well, that's Union. true. Yeah, okay. Now, this is a nice little thing. I – you know, again, it's like with the Infinity Inc., it's just like, all right, enough with the Green Lanterns. My <laughs> God. You know, like, geez. But it's a nice drawing. I mean, there's no yeah, doubt about it's it. It's great. Except, you know.
1: Absolutely outstanding. You see him in the top, he's, like, he's with uh, Aresia and Salek and Chip, and they're blasting something. And then you see him down in the bottom, and he's fixing a machine, in the background you see the Kremlin. So, it's nice. Well done. Alright. Up next is possibly one of my favorite entries in the issue. I kid you not. It is Kite Man. That's right. This guy's gimmick is kites, and he's flying on a hang glider. And he is the very definition of a complete mort. However, I think that's why I love him, because the updates are not full of Mort's like the original volume of Who's Who. was. You you couldn't go but like five pages without hitting a Mort in the original Who's Who. This guy, there's just not a lot of these in the updates, so I love him. I'm I'm absolutely in love with this character. Uh, Art by Richard Howell and Murphy Anderson. Now, Richard Howell uh, made sense to draw him because Richard Howell was drawing the Hawkman book at the time, and this is a Hawkman foe. And uh, his name is, get it, Charlie Brown. I love it. (laughs) He's been beaten up by Batman, Robin, the Hawks, the Tana. Now, it almost makes it look like it took all of them combined to take him down, which I don't think is quite right. But there's stuff in the background where he's carrying, you know, there's like giant, you know, oscillating fans on a stick. He's carrying two of those in blowing kites at Batman and Robin. Look out! They're kites, Batman and Robin! <laughs> oh my! And then there's a picture of a tree and a kite stuck in a tree. I don't even know what that's supposed to represent, but that's hilarious. You got one of Hawkman pasting him one. Well,
2: I assume it's a it's sort of
1: a reference to. Oh, he's peanuts, in the tree too. Peanuts, which is the the
2: kite eating tree.
1: Oh my gosh! I didn't even think of that. That's brilliant, Rob. Oh my god! And his little feet are sticking out of it. I didn't even see that. That is so funny. Then you get one of Zatanna just pimp slapping it with magic, and uh, and she's in her classic outfit too, by the way. Not not the. Obviously, she was wearing it at this point in history. Uh, there's barely any text here, but it's just enough for me to fall in love. I love this last bit where it says he is a poor leader and an even poorer hand-to-hand combatant. <laughs> so it's, it's very much Charlie Brown's sad sack is what they're going with, and uh, the tree just sells the whole thing. I'm I'm in love with this entry.
2: Yeah, how do you not love this guy?
1: I mean, how do you love a villain who just is this brave when he has
2: just <laughs> nothing going for him? I mean, watch out. He's slowly getting away. I mean,
1: you know. It's, <laughs> Better hope the breeze doesn't die down. Yeah,
2: exactly. I mean, oh, no. I mean, and of all the villains for him not to take on, it would be Hawkman, someone who can right. fly. You know, like I would go after the more land-based villains, um, uh, heroes to fight. No, this I, – I love Kite Man
1: because it, it's just so stupid that it's great. And the beauty of it is, I mean, he is all in. He is all in. Between the, the, the gimmick kikes, the uh, the hang glider, the, on the helmet he's got a picture of a kite, on his chest he's got a picture of a kite, on his belt he's got a picture of a Oh, I'm sure kite. back
2: at the kite cave he's got all sorts of things with kites <laughs> on it, you know, yeah.
1: I love him. I
2: love him. Now he it's... first appeared in Batman 133, which is yeah. pretty old, but it was that was after Peanuts had already started. So I have to assume that that if he was named Charles Brown in the begin in his first appearance, I don't know whether he was or not that it was a reference to, uh, you know, that it, it was directly inspired by Charlie Brown at the time as opposed to some writer later on deciding, "Oh, let's give him a secret identity. Oh, let's name him after Peanuts."
1: It could be either way. Either yeah. way, it works. Yeah. I mean, it's...
2: <laughs> it's, so it's interesting. Good. There's probably nobody really fighting for creator credit over this.
1: <laughs> Charlie, uh, Charles uh, Schultz might be. But, there's,
2: uh, there's some guy, you know,
1: like, if he shows up on Gotham,
2: where's my equity? Where's my, oh. where's my creator equity? Oh, never mind. It's
1: all right. He'd be called, like, stunt kite or something nowadays, though. Um... The next page, two-page spread, revised update for Krypton and Kryptonite. So it's a joint entry for Krypton and Kryptonite. Art by John Byrne. You get interesting image of, of the planet of Krypton in three phases as it's, you know, you see one side of the planet, the other side of the planet, and then you see it exploding. And then you see sort of the particle cloud left behind of the explosion. And then you see the Earth where Kryptonite has actually crashed onto the planet. And superimposed across that is, is Superman's uh, post-crisis rocket traveling from the exploding Krypton to Earth. You actually see little bits of kryptonite and the exact places where they were found, including the signet ring worn by Lex Luthor. Um, and you get four phases of the Kryptonians' heritage. You see them sort of as uh, what I would call primitives, even though they were still technologically advanced. Then you see them in basically the Renaissance. <laughs> uh, and then you see, it's a man and wife in each instance. You A know, man and wife uh, in sort of warriors savage warriors you see them as man and wife is in renaissance you see man and wife which is i'm guessing probably supposed to emulate maybe the silver age krypton era because they look kind of sciency well, and then finally the burn you know uh, uh, era of krypton where you get that that smock with the you know patchwork stuff and the very sterile environment stuff i love it i think it's a gorgeous image it screams you know the man of steel to me it just makes me so happy um, now, they do talk about the first appearances. They're all leading back to the original pre-crisis appearances, as they should. They talk a lot about cloning in here and the rights of clones. And quite frankly, this is a more interesting Clone Wars, as far as I'm concerned. And they talk about the sterile environment. And, but then they talk about how um, Jor-El and Lara, am I getting that right? Oh, gosh. Wait, yeah, it's Lara, right? Yeah, Lara, okay. yeah. And how they actually loved each other and conceived this child. And they talk about how Superman goes into the birthing matrix and how he's born on Earth, not on Krypton. And uh, they also talk about the world of Krypton. Uh, well, I guess it mentions it later. But at this point, this was written before the World of Krypton miniseries had been published. So I think Byrne was sort of like cranking out a lot of stuff about Krypton here that he would later use in the World of Krypton miniseries. Like, I don't think all of this played out in the Superman comic at this point. No. I it, it could be wrong. No, I don't think it did. What did you think of this one?
2: Um, I, I found this entry really pretty boring, but I find most of the planet listings boring. But at the same time, it completely deserves it. Crypt- Krypton is one of the big settings of DC Comics. It's it's probably like one of the few origin settings of any character in fiction that the average person has heard of. Even if they've never read a comic book, everybody knows Superman is from Krypton. So it completely deserves the space. So and even though I found it kind of boring and I think the poses are boring and whatever, it's just – it's not a very exciting listing. It, it, it deserves it. It absolutely deserves it.
1: Yeah, when you step outside of the characters, it pretty much comes down to Krypton and the Batcave. Those yeah. are the two things you yeah. kind of have Everybody's
2: to – Everybody's heard of Krypton. And yep. You could ask a random person and you could, they – where is Superman from? They'd be able to tell you that it's
1: Krypton. Yep. Um yeah, you know, I th- I'm starting to think that Todd Klein had the month off. Um okay. looking at these logos Because there are some real weak sauce logos throughout this thing.
2: Yeah, some of these are just yeah faces. All
1: right, up next is the tent pole character. <laughs> oh, I'm on, carrying one. Okay. Tent pole oh, character of the book. God. Uh specifically Lady Blockhawk's rear end. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. From the cover, we've got Lady Blockhawk drawn by wait for it, Brian Bollin. Oh yeah. So not only is she hot by Edward Barreto, she's hotter by Brian Bolland. Actually, I don't know. They're both equally hot, I would say. So you've got here Zinda Blake, and uh, she is, the you know, again, the the first woman who ever joined the Blackhawks. And actually, I did some research on this. Um, by the way, do you, do you know Bolland's connection with Blackhawks? You might know. I, I didn't know much. I found one thing. Do you know of any connection?
2: No. What's the connection? Okay.
1: Um The only connection I could find was... Do you remember when we covered History of the DC Universe not too long ago? Yeah. In the History of DC Universe, the uh, special version that I bought, the, the one with all the essays and stuff, the Julie Schwartz essay has a bunch of heads that I believe were taken from the wall that was painted uh, at DC's office. Oh, the mural, right? Yeah. not sure if it was taken from the mural or not, but it has a bunch of heads that are in on the Julie Schwartz piece, and the Lady Blackhawk head is drawn by Bond. That's
2: right, that's right.
1: And also, um, and I'm I'm jumping way ahead, but in the back of the book here, it does say there was a Blackhawk miniseries that was going to come that fall. Do you know if that happened in 87?
2: Uh, I'm not exactly sure which one they're referring to. There was supposed to be a Blackhawk miniseries that would pick up right after the Evinir Spiegel run, and then it got canceled. So maybe that's what they're referring to.
1: And this is entirely speculation. But I wonder if Ballin was jockeying for that. Oh, I have no idea. Well, I mean he—he's connected well, to Lady. Well, Blachart they had an twice. artist assigned to it, though. Oh, did they? Yeah, okay. Carmen right.
2: Infantino. All
1: right. Well, maybe he just liked the Lady Blockheart character. I mean, he—he's an amazing artist. He, he draws women even more amazing. So you know, all right. Good on him. So anyway, there's an interesting um, dispute about her first appearance. Now, she's credited as first appearing in 1959 and joining the Blackhawks. It goes all the way back to 59. Joining the Blackhawks. However, apparently back in 1943 there was a story about a woman who wanted to join the Blackhawks and try to join the Blackhawks and help them out who looks just like or looks very similar to Zinda Blake. But she was never named. So the question is whether she was actually in the 1943 version or 1959 version was her first appearance. So there you go, a little controversy for you. Someone go figure that out. Um, dude, she's smoking hot. Oh my gosh, just like in so many naughty ways. Now the, the one in the 40s, she actually had light. She, if you don't know her, she wears this the same outfit as the Blackhawks, which is basically a black. Was like you call it patent leather? Is that what you yeah, call it?
2: Yeah, yeah, patent leather costume. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, aviator
1: Beautiful. top. Right. Very form fitting. And then the bottom, rather than wearing just like these form-fitting pants, she's wearing the shortest micro skirt on the planet. And it's totally hot. Now in the 40s, she was actually had leggings on as well. But by the, some point around, they got rid of those so that you know the boys could be like, hmm. In the background, you get a nice close-up of her face. She's absolutely stunning, and then she's pasting a Nazi and she's parachuting in, and all the Blackhawks are cheering because they're looking up her skirt. And <laughs> <she comes
2: down. laughs> I always figured that was Brian Balin being a little uh, cheeky, as a were.
1: Yes, probably. So uh, Zinda's a great character because now here's where my love for Zinda comes. In, I, I haven't really read any Blackhawk comics. However, she was pulled through from time. During Zero Hour... Oh, for guts. No, no, wait, hold on, though. She was pulled from time in Zero Hour to the modern day, and she became a supporting character in the Guy Gardner Warrior series. And the reason that that worked was because Guy had a bar called Warrior's. And there was a bunch of supporting characters in the Warriors bar. I mean, it was almost I don't want to say it was like Cheers, but they're just a bunch of cool superheroes. But to some extent, it was. It was, you know, Lady Blockhawk would hang out of the bar. And then, a couple years later, she hooked up with Barbara Gordon and became the pilot for the Birds of Prey during Gail Simone's run. Or actually, that may have happened during Chuck Dixon's run. I'm not sure which. Either way, she became the, the Birds of Prey's pilot. And so she did that for years, and so she's, she's around, it. well, at least just prior to Flashpoint, she was around in modern day as an active character who was kicking ass. And they gave him a chance to use her in the modern day. She was really cool. Okay. They called her Zindi, is what they called her. Okay. You didn't know any of this? No. Really? Oh, okay. No. Now, have you read many Blackhawk comics with her?
2: No, because I'm really more familiar. with said my favorite ones are the Evaneer Spiegel ones, and he didn't use Lady Blackhawk at all. I so, why. she's, yeah, he mentions it in one of the letter comms. He just, I don't know, I just felt like he wanted to concentrate on the other characters. They, she really came to the fore later on. Like, in the, there was in the Action Comics Weekly series, and then later on, I, I feel like the whole sexy Blackhawk angle just got played up instead of, you know, writing these boring side characters, not side characters, but the other guys. It was like, oh, it's more fun to write the super hot Blackhawk girl. So, I think she, she's, she's more of a, a sort of a recent rediscovery. I think she okay. really wasn't that big of a... She really wasn't in the regular book very much.
1: Oh, ah, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, if you want to hear more about Lady Black... Or about the Blackhawks in general, check out an episode of the Fire and Water podcast just a couple weeks ago with Michael Bailey and uh, some other guy. And as I understand, that will be a crossover with views from the long box at some point. About that's right. We're going to do Blackhawk part two, right? And if you want to hear more about Zindi, check out the Backworld Oracle podcast. Um, they only do one episode a month, so it'll be in about 15 years. She'll catch up and get to the Birds of Prey issues, where Zindi shows up. So there you go. Just hang tight. Same thing for this next character, <laughs> Lady Shiva. Lady Shiva, uh, who's known to me as the most badass fighter in the DC Universe. I mean, she's just like the ultimate ass-kicking machine. And it's very strange for me to read about her here in her very early, early, early days, where she was still an accomplished fighter, it was still one of the most dangerous people alive, but she hadn't taken on that like total ass-kicking leg- legend that she'd become. But I mean, at this point, she her name is Sandra. I didn't know that. That's just the Lady Shiva's name shouldn't be Sandra. It should be like <laughs> Debbie. Well, it should be like Death Killing Machine, should be her name or something like that, you know? So I was like, wow, Sand Sandra. What? Isn't that like from uh Greece? Anyway, um, her first appearance was in Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter, which I had also forgotten about. And reading this text, it sounds like there was a period of time in the book, or maybe it was just one of those you know, telling flashback stories, where she actually traveled around with Richard Dragon and Bronze Tiger, and they all three of them teamed up and went and had adventures together. So, I wasn't aware of that. I had no idea. And eventually, she, why she was here in the update was because she had recently appeared in The Question. And uh, they had sent The Question to her to learn how to fight um, because she had, uh, or Richard Dragon. I'm sorry, Richard Dragon. Wait, hold on. Let me see if I got that. I could have this mixed up. Um,
0: You're going to have
1: to
2: edit this. I'm not editing. No, <laughs> I don't edit the Who's Who shows. Come on. All right. Uh, it's drawn by Jan Dersema. Let's fill some time. It's drawn by Jan
1: Dersema, and it's quite nice. Okay. Shiva kicked his ass, and she sent him to Richard Dragon. That's what it was. So the question trained under Richard Dragon. So, okay. For a year, he trained under Richard Dragon. So, anyway, one of the, one of the deadliest fighters in the world. You mentioned Jan Drushima. I looked it up. This is As far as I can tell, this is the only time Jan ever drew the character.
2: Yeah, I don't know any connection to, to yeah. her in this character.
1: Well, again, Lady Shiva goes on throughout DC's history and goes into the 90s and the 2000s as just being a constant, reoccurring, incredible, most dangerous fighter in the world character. Uh, and Eventually hooks up with the Birds of Prey. So, again, check out background Oracle in about 15 years. All right, up next, the Legion of Substitute Heroes drawn by Greg LaRock and Mike DiCarlo. Now, this is a huge departure from the Legion of Substitute Heroes that we saw in the previous Who's Who entry, because those were, you know, done by Keith Giffen, and by that point they were being done more for laughs, and were quirky and stuff like that. This is more of a serious sort of action hero team, and it consists of it's not going to sound like it when I start saying their names. I uh, should realize that. It's Bouncing Boy, Comic Queen, Cosmic Boy, Karate Kid 2, and Night Girl. Um, I will be the man who fights for your honor. Wait, I'm not wrong, Karate Kid 2. Um, so, they're, they look like a real team. They sound silly, but I mean, Comic Queen has got, you know, she's kind of funky looking. She's got sort of the, the Starfire thing going on where her hair is billowy and just seems to trail on as she flies, but it's supposed to look like a comet. She's got a, you know all-orange body. You've got Night Girl, who is smoking hot. You know, Cosmic Boy, Bouncing Boy. But then, this Karate Kid 2 character fascinated me. I had to look him up. It looks like he's running super fast, but that's not the case. He's just got, you know, really good martial arts skills. But he is the successor to the original Karate Kid, and eventually he went on to actually join the Legion during the five-year later gap. I had no idea. Basically what happened was, there was an emergency, and Cosmic Boy formed a new Legion substitute here.
0: <laughs> Why are
2: you laughing?
1: What emergency could there be where that is your natural move? Wait, well, he—they have all. You think the JLA has regulations and rules? You ain't seen nothing compared to what the Legions charters are. So I'm sure he couldn't just put together a team and call it a Legion. He'd probably, you know, face an impeachment or something. And
2: yet, He'd I am entire, yet I am remember. constantly taking a task for not being fans of these characters.
1: Get on board, sir In fact, speaking of which, go over to the Legion of Superbloggers For more information on these Legion of Superheroes Substitute heroes What's that? I refuse The art is really boss, though It's very nice Night girl, again, smoking hot Comic queen, looks so much fun Now, I will say Karate Kid 2's costume Unnecessarily busy A lot of stuff going on there It's red and black, which doesn't always reproduce that well all right. Up next, Lex Luthor. and thank goodness there is only one Luther entry. I don't know if you remember when we did Volume One of Who's Who. <laughs> well, there was, were there was like six. It was four. There was four Luther entries in one issue. It was crazy. It just kept going. So we've only got one Lex Luther. Uh, this is by John Byrne, and uh, again they've got the classic first appearance listed, Action Comics number twenty-three, which is great. And the the my gut instincts. You know, the first move most people say when they talk about the John Byrne uh, reinvention of Lex Luthor is they go, oh, it's it's the Kingpin. It's their version of, of Daredevil's Kingpin. And that was my first move. That's what I wrote in my notes here. But the more I look at it, he's not really. I mean, he is overweight, and yet he, he's also very physical, uh, very muscular, and there's times where he will beat the crap out of somebody and actually kill them with his own hands. But... The Kingpin controlled all the crime in Gotham, and that's not what Lex wants yeah, to do. Yeah, no, yeah, that's not... Lex yeah. wants to control Metropolis. I'm not Gotham, I'm sorry, I said Gotham, didn't I? The Kingpin controls all the crime in New York. Lex Luthor wants to control Metropolis, but he wants to control the legal side of it. And he's got some shady dealings going on, especially in, like, scientific experiments, but he's more interested in making money and keeping the city running. You know, In fact, which why he made a pretty good president, actually, when he was president of the United States, which made for an interesting storyline years later. What a
2: crazy comic book universe that a megalomaniacal businessman would run for president. That's insane. <laughs> Who would ever hear of such a thing? <laughs> comic books are so stupid.
1: <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Well done, sir. Well done. Um, and again, rather than Kingpin where he was, you know, had the whole evil organization, Lex was more like individually evil. You know, all of his minions weren't necessarily evil. They were just following orders. And, again, he he had a lot of scientific experiments going uh, that may have been questionable. But, again, he wasn't running all the crime around, you know. So... Anyway, yeah, great foreground image of him sitting there, you know, again, overweight. He's got the black suit on, he's smoking a cigar. He does look very Kingpin esque, just in black versus white. You see him wrestling with Superman in the background in the serpent, You see some scientists. You see a close up of him when he still had hair. You see his Lex building, which is a giant L. And in the text, they go on to describe how Lex, this is where his hatred of Superman comes from. Lex, for the longest time, was the most powerful man in Metropolis. And when he created a scenario for Superman to show up he sort of manipulated uh, some situations put some people in danger and that got Lex arrested and at that point the mayor said uh, Lex you're not the most important person, I'm paraphrasing you're not the most important person uh, or most most powerful person in Metropolis anymore and that created the rivalry between Lex and Superman as Lex got arrested, Lex swore never to be arrested again and so you, a lot of the entry talks about how Lex is you know, implicated in stuff but is never found guilty for anything I love this era, Lex.
2: Yeah, me too. There, there was, there's a great backup story they did where Lex figures out he hires his henchmen to figure out that who Superman really is, and they figure out that Superman is Clark Kent. They yeah. they figure it out, and he's like, "That's ridiculous. No human being like Superman would pretend to be a regular human." That's you're wrong. I love that idea that he was such a a power mad, fame crazed lunatic that he could not imagine somebody would. Purposely not pursue that kind of life. I thought that was such a great character beat for him.
3: Yeah.
1: I I liked later on, part of the reason he ran for president was because he had seen an interview with Superman basically saying where Superman would always report to the president. And that's part of the reason Lex ran, because he knew Superman would have to, you know, report to him basically. (laughs) So it's just another power move, though, you know. It's it's right. It's perfect for his character. All right, the last entry. Oh
2: wait, I just wanted to hold on. Wait a minute. Oh, I'm sorry. I love this. Is the only character probably says for marital status, married many times.
1: (laughs) That's good point. And I
2: love Burns' drawing of him in the black suit. There's no
1: detail on the suit. It's just flat black. I love that look. It's great. Plus, it's easier. Burns such a master. He's so good, especially this at this point. You know, 1987, I mean, he's the absolute Oh, Burn in the 80s was...
2: yeah. Burn in the 80s was Jim Aparo in the 70s. Okay, there
1: you go, yeah. All right, up next uh, is, you know, going out on a high note here, Lion Mane, another Hawkman foe. Richard Howell and Don Heck. And yes, it looks just like you would imagine it would. Uh, It is an anthropomorphic lion, a were-lion, if you will. And his real name is Edward Dawson. And he is either a complete idiot or a glutton for punishment, I don't know which, but he he, he touched this meteorite rock, which transformed him into this were-lion creature, right? And he gets beat by Hawkman, or somebody, or whatever, I don't care. And, but the point is, three times he does this! He turns into the were lion, you know, touches the rock, turns into the were-lion. Then years later, Touches another one of these meteors, turns into where. So I, it doesn't tell you in the in the history here whether he's purposefully doing this or just has the worst string of luck on the planet. I don't know what, but he keeps touching these stupid meteors. It looks like in the, in one of the serpents, like he's doing it on purpose. Looks like he's actually knocked a display apart so he can get to it. I don't know. And you see Carter Hall and uh, what I assume is Shayera Hall, you know, running towards him to be like, no, don't do it. Anyway, um, you know, I really feel like there's a missed opportunity here with this rock. This uh, what is it called? a Mithra meteorite I feel like there's an, a missed opportunity this archaeological dig to find the Mithra meteorite they could have done a cool crossover with Metamorpho you know where he found the uh, the orb of Ra or whatever it was, you know archaeological thing could have been some kind of connection there um, I don't know who really would have benefited off that but anyway, would have been neat and uh, as I'm reading through the entry it very quickly goes off the rails because they start talking about Darkwing so, cool logo though yeah <laughs> In the background, you know, Carter's face there, where, you know, I actually felt like that looked a little bit like an Aparo face at first, just because he's got the hair and stuff like that. But mm, yeah, I don't know about that. Okay. all right. And that is Who's Who Update 87, Volume 3 of the entries. All we have left is the back page. couple things to shout out here. They're, they do tell you that Millennium is coming. So, uh, fair warning about that, folks. Then they mentioned Hippolyta is seen... F- regularly fretting about her daughter. <laughs> wow, there's a verb you don't see too often in comic books. Fretting. Infinity Inc apparently is not looked... since pariah. Right. Dude, I saw somebody cosplayed pariah at DragonCon. And <laughs> it was hilarious. Um Infinity Inc. is so <laughs> not worth mentioning that their entry, rather than saying like Infinity Inc. is seen, you know, saving Gotham City, blah, blah. no, it just says, Infinity Inc. is a regular deluxe format monthly title. I mean, that is about as factual as you can get, you know. It's like saying the air is composed of oxygen and nitrogen, okay? There's no emotion behind that. They talk a little bit about Constantine, how he's going to get his own book, so that's leading up to Hellblazer, obviously. They talk about how Justice League is going to become the Justice League International. They tell you the world of Krypton is coming, and they do mention again that Black Hawk miniseries. And the covers you get, you get a Joe Staden Green Lantern Corps, which is better off not mentioned. You get an amazing young All-Stars cover, by I want to think I think the guy's name was Brian Murray. It's just gorgeous. It's a Fury and it's got other characters surrounding it. You get a John Byrne Superman cover. You get the Justice League number six where Captain Marvel's about to smash um, uh, uh, Martian Manhunter. You get a Perez Wonder Woman which looks great with the cheetah, and you get a Warlord Annual which looks just really really gorgeous. So nice covers, nice covers there. All right. Well, I think we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play a couple podcast promos, and when we come back on the other side, we're going to do your listener feedback.
0: Do you want to hear the origin of Superman or Batman? Of course not. You're listening to a geek culture podcast. You know the origins of Superman and Batman. You've always known them. Your unborn grandchildren know the origins of Superman and Batman. But what about Guy Gardner? blue beetle or the phantom stranger what about firestorm sandman or the golden age fury those are just a few of the stories covered in the secret origins podcast a review show dedicated to the secret origins comic published by dc in the 1980s each episode of the secret origins podcast features me ryan daly and an all-star collection of guest hosts revealing or revisiting the legends of the dc superheroes and villains And if you're already sick of hearing my voice on this promo, the good news is at least 50% of the talking on the Secret Origins podcast is done by a terrific guest from the podcast and blogging community. So check out the Secret Origins podcast, available on iTunes and at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com.
3: you're doing places yourself and the rest of your party in the gravest danger inside lie monsters greater than your worst nightmares they were all evil in life and remained evil after death and now the terror is loose upon the podcasting world again
0: it's not in my power to help you
3: you're the only one that understands Nobody else in the world who believe me. This September and October, dare to visit Supermates' estates and walk the halls in this hall of horror, this abode of angst. Return to the House of Franklin Stein. Legends of classic horror spread their evil, but fear not. Your favorite heroes are here to challenge them. Do me a favor, Shaggy. Stay down. Yes, not. Beware these masters of the macabre, Bela Lugosi.
1: Your fate is to be what you are. But mine
3: is to be what I am, Lon Chaney Jr. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. Christopher Lee. I am come unto thee, O Osiris, who art cleansed of all impurities. Peter Cushing. Consequences? That sounds like a threat. And Ingrid Pitt. You must die! Everybody must die! A Supermatescomic.blogspot.com production. Coming soon to an iTunes near you. Return to the house of Franklin Stein. are just dying to greet you
1: and we're back with your feedback and this is specifically feedback from who's who update 87 volume 2 is what we're going to be referencing and Rob, there's a couple of things right off the top uh, you want to share with the folks at home?
2: Yeah, um, we got two uh, custom entries uh, drawn by Zoom Yukinori, the inc- crazy mad uh, Zoom Yukinori. One was a belated birthday present to me where he created an Aqua Rob listing. Um, <laughs> I don't even know if I want to share this on the Tumblr because (laughs) I love it so much and it's so sort of personal to my life that I'm not sure I'm ready. He mixes in everything. I mean – Uh, apparently if you read this Aquarab listing you can see that there are cross-references for other Who's Who listings like Chris Franklin and Cindy Franklin and uh, (laughs) you know he mentions my parents he mentions Ace Kilroy he mentions my Ace Kilroy partner Dan O'Connor he mentions the Aftermath podcast he says I'm 6'2 which I'm not which I really appreciate I would love to be be 6'2 it's a really beautiful piece Uh, I think I guess we will have to post it because we're bringing it up here but uh, yeah Shaggy had something to do with it as well, and I I thank them both very much for the belated birthday present, because it's really a gorgeous thing. I showed it to Darlene Tracy, and she got all teary-eyed when she saw it, because she just thought it was such a nice gesture um, for... uh for, for Shag and for Zoom to do. Oh, but does mention the eyes are hazel? I don't have hazel eyes, but that's okay. It's, it's I don't think there's any pictures of me where you can actually see my eye color. So, uh, yeah, it's there's a big close-up of me in the Surprint. <laughs> uh, there's me taking on some bad guys with my Aqua Powers. There's Fire Shag in the background, which is never ceases to look creepy. Uh, and then there's <laughs> me with my whale and stuff, and I am ripped, man, I gotta say. I am friggin' ripped.
1: Yeah, at- tell them who the bad guy's are. Or you're taking out uh, yeah double <laughs> why don't you go
2: ahead and do that
1: well fine we'll cover this like a legit who's who entry here we go now you mentioned me I I have to tell you this this is 99, well, 95% Zoom, only 5% me. I'm, at the very best, I could be qualified as a co-plotter. I just filled in some gaps on your personal history that I know. And hopefully it's not too revealing. I mean, pretty much everything here is stuff you've either said on the podcast or posted on Facebook. There's nothing I don't know why I needed to mention
2: when I lost my virginity. That seems a little much in the first appearances section. I don't understand. <laughs> it's just over the line.
1: So Rob is... 2006?
2: Cows. I mean, you know... <laughs>
1: So Rob is taking out with a backhanded water power, uh, he's taking out these two guys that are sort of being, they're being knocked back and they've got all sparkly sort of pattern on them. They are the double space. <laughs> because Rob has expressed recently his absolute despise, uh, how much he hates double spacing, people double spacing when they're writing after a period.
2: If I, del- if I had a nickel for every double space I delete from my coworkers, I would be so wealthy I wouldn't need to work there.
1: Can't you just do a search and replace, double space for one space?
2: I, I well, I just mean how many of them I've had to replace. Is what I mean.
1: Yeah. So it goes into the personal data. The height is is my fault. I thought you were six two. I thank I, you. I, everyone's tall to me. So uh, anyway, it goes in. Yes, it talks about his love of comics. Talks about his pilgrimages to the Poconos Mountains. It does, in fact, talk about uh, you know he, he, the way he gave up his comics and how Star Wars almost pushed everything out of his life.
2: <laughs> it mentions Tower Records.
1: Yep. Yeah. Mountain Comics, it talks about the Qbert School, and as you said, award-winning Ace Ace Kilroy. And then it goes on to talk about your blogs, your aftermath podcast, and how it led to um, Loretta Swit filing a restraining order against you. (laughs) Which wasn't true, but I I got a kick out of that. (laughs) And yes, it does mention me, and uh, it also talks about your other enemy, the insidious right-wing, the internet troll, which is just (laughs) hilarious, if you know Rob, (laughs) on Facebook. And uh, it's just—it was an absolute hoot to come up with. You've got power, like, here's your powers and weapons. His mind irradiated by extreme levels of comic book fandom, Aquarob Aqua Rob gained aquatic vocalpathy, vocalpathy that enabled him to broadcast his love of Aquaman across the entire internet. His superhuman endurance allowed him to tolerate even the intense needling of his annoying co-host, Fire Shag, <laughs> at least on a weekly basis. He could also run a reported maximum, <laughs> he could also run a reported maximum distance of six miles at any one time. <laughs> and if you know Rob on Facebook, it's because he's constantly posting, just ran six miles. Just ran six you miles. you
2: notice I haven't mentioned it in quite a while,
1: by the uh-oh. way. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Better get back on that horse. But, no, I'm uh, not saying I'm not doing it. I'm just saying I'm not posting it. That's all. Anyway, Zoom did an amazing job. Again, at best, I could maybe be co-plotter. I don't I don't want to take any thunder away from him. This is a, an amazing entry and just knocked it out of the park. I know how I felt when he did the fire shag entry, so I can only imagine this is uh, – the warm and fuzzies you're feeling for yeah, this
2: Yeah, I got two pages. It's fantastic.
1: I yeah. Okay. By the way, what's up with that? Rob gets a double page <laughs> spread, like the Silver Age Justice Leaguers, and I get a single page.
2: Uh, what well, the? What uh, the? What? Uh, you know. Hey.
1: Just saying. Just saying. It better. It better be like Batman in the updates, where I get a double page spread in the in the updates. So anyway. Yeah. Good luck with that. All right. Why don't you, do you tell the folks about the next one? So
2: anyway, he sent another one, which is, uh when uh, Michael Bailey and I, my true co-host Michael Bailey and I, did the, <laughs> uh, the Blackhawk show for Fire and Water, we talked about how the main Blackhawk villain that Mark Evanier created was Domino, this buxom uh, Nazi assassin. And we were – I retroactively uh, was annoyed by the fact that she did not get a Who's Who listing. Now, not to ruin the stories, but Domino doesn't make it out. Of these stories, so maybe that's why they figured, well, she she wasn't going to appear anymore. But still, she she was in almost like every single issue of the of the Evanier Spiegel run. So we felt she deserved a listing, So Zoom, of course, just went ahead and made one, and it's drawn quote unquote by Dan Spiegel with Zoom Yukonori. and it gives her her whole listing. Uh, you know, it has her her personal data and her history and her powers and weapons, and it looks comp- as all of Zoom's custom Who's Who entries look, it looks completely plausible. It looks, you know, you would not know it is not a real listing. And in fact, I actually sent this to the Blackhawk writer, Mark Evanier, oh. so he could see it, because I just think this thing is just so beautiful, because it's it, it's, it's you, you could just you could just print it out and stick it in your Who's Who book volume 5, I think it is, and you wouldn't know the difference. And by the way, the logo is awesome
1: too, by the way. Um, just a slight he took that from the comic book. That's from the comic. Book. Oh, okay. This—he actually did this before you guys did your episode. This is actually a commission. Someone his who's who work has become so well known. Someone commissioned him to do one. Isn't that cool? Really? Yeah. I didn't know so, that. Yep. So, all right. Well, let's get into your feedback, folks. Uh, just so you know, we're, as we read this, we're going to just read select messages. We're not going to read every bit of feedback we got. It's impossible to do that. If you don't know how the show works, whenever we do a show, I compile the feedback because Rob is lazy and doesn't want to do any of the work and doesn't even read the comic. And I put it all together in a Google document so we can reference it and read it as we go. This sucker, just for one issue of Who's Who, the feedback is 26 pages long. I kid you not. So we are going to – One page for every Infinity (laughs) Inc listing. (laughs) So we're just going to we're going to be pulling out highlights. So if you don't get mentioned, you know, don't take it personal. We just we've got to pick and choose. There's the only way to get through this. We're already at like the 2-hour mark almost. So we don't want to If we don't read your email, we don't it's not cuz we don't like you, Brian yes. Haley. <laughs> What? <laughs> All right. Up first is a, a an email we got from David Tony. He uh he said in here, well, reading Comic Geek Speaks forum specifically about an episode of the Crisis on Infinite Earth podcast, someone mentioned that you guys were doing a Who's Who podcast. Found you guys and I'm hooked. By the way, whoever put out that message on the Comic Geek Speak forum you have our thanks. We appreciate that. And then he said, okay, quick origin story time. Like you guys, I read off the spinner rack as it came out. I remember in the summer of 1987 after the entire series was said and done. I went back and reread it, and I think at that point, the update had come out with all of the quote, this character no longer exists pages in the back of the update. My family and I took a road trip to California to the Black Hills and Mount Rushmore. The entire drive, I remember pouring through the issues, and then getting out my pen and paper to ask Dick Giordano a ton of questions. Obscure questions, but questions I needed answered. The only one I remembered was asking whether airwaves still existed in post-crisis. I never sent the letter, but it's a memory of that summer that I keep with me to this day. Very cool. That's a great.
2: I love that idea of a kid just writing a letter to Dick Giordano with all these questions. <laughs> it's great. I love it. Uh, we got a message from uh, Canada Clark. I love that name. Uh, for Who's Who fans, I think it's pretty obvious we should be called Hooligans. And then he adds, "Get it? Yes, Thank you, <laughs> that Canada. I got it."
1: And that's something that we asked for last time we said what do we what do we call the who's who fans and so we you'll notice throughout this episode we've got a bunch of different nicknames suggested, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, we, uh, we got to get,
2: get work on building that wall between America and Canada for sure. Uh, we got an email from <laughs> Charles uh, – that's a great idea – from Charles Coletta. He says, Shag and Rob, I'm relatively new to the Fire and Water podcast, but you've got me hooked now through the Husu Who episodes. It's been a blast listening to you guys and your enthusiasm for this series and the DCU. He's not going to like this episode. This was a pivotal <laughs> era for DC, and I'm glad you're chronicling it. You've inspired me to dig up my old issues that I bought back in the 1980s, and now I'm reading along with you and spending too much time Thinking about long forgotten characters, plots, and questions like why didn't Purple Pile Driver Action 464 rate an entry?
1: We actually I, spent some time talking about that character in, in the feedback a that, few, a few that, issues that ago. that question
2: answers itself. Anyone interested <laughs> in comics history may be interested to learn about the Brown Popular Culture Library at Bowling Green University in Ohio. I teach in the Department of Popular Culture and regularly hold a superhero and comics history class for undergrads. I wish all my students were as engaged as you two. <laughs> I, I don't think you really want that Charles The Brown Pop Cultural <laughs> Library Archive is one of the largest Comics collections in an academic setting The public is welcome to come for research Or just pleasure reading We're going to have to acquire the Suzu issues for the Archive We don't already have them Keep up the good work Very cool Thank you Charles He's a member of Foam He's been submitting things to the Shrine for a couple of years So yeah that's oh. very cool I'm glad that he uh, came back around And like found us over at the podcast
1: Well, when I was in Ohio, actually, there was some consideration about going and checking out this museum, our uh, library, actually. So, now, just a tip for you. If you want to go see a large uh, library dedicated to comic books, go there to, as you said, the Brown Popular Culture Library uh, rather than going to the Library of Congress. Because if you go there, things aren't going to go well for you. I learned that last year myself. Firsthand. All right, we heard from Plum Zaplook. I have no idea if this is his guy's real name, but I love it. Plum Zaplook. I mean, he's he sounds like he's right up there with Zoot Sputnik. Yeah, I think anyway. he's in the
2: back. Of Amazing man, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> thank <laughs> thank you. I found the Aquaman Shrine and searched it for days. Eventually, I ended up at Who's Who. And I love Update Volume 1 so much that I went back to hear all the other volumes. Also, uh, r- real thanks, guys, for getting useless characters like Red B, Tomahawk, and 90% of the Legion in my head. Well, you're welcome. And now you have the hybrid. Congratulations. <laughs> then we heard from our buddy Ange, who runs the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, Legion of Superbloggers, and you heard him here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network just recently. He wrote about Catwoman. He said, Meow! Great art from Alan Davis. So fantastic. Would easily be the best page in the book if it weren't for Commissioner Gordon. Wow! That is the best art in the book. Mazzuchelli is just a master I love both Dark Knight Returns and Year One But as time passed, I feel Dark Knight Returns Is a great comic for its time Where Year One is a great comic for all time I'm not knocking Dark Knight Returns I love it, but Year One is superior for me And um, now this is Shag That's a follow up to We had a bit of that discussion last episode And I had postulated the same thing That I I, I like Year One better than Dark Knight Returns And um, he agrees with me So there you go, smart guy
2: uh, he says, regarding Flash, I agree that that
1: art is a terrible showcase for the
2: character. Is he tripping? Doing a jig? Skipping to school? <laughs> While I'm old enough to have read Barry as the Flash, Wally is my Flash. The whole thing about living up to Barry, growing as a hero, becoming the legend, it's all great. And I think it is a shame that this Wally has simply vanished. I got the I got the early Baron Geiss issues, but then went away until Wade came back on board. But Wade's whole run is
1: superior. So true. So true. And it, and it is disappointing that Everything Wally did. I mean, Wally was the Flash for twenty years, twenty years, and um, poof, all gone. So, anyway, uh, then Ange goes on to comment about Fury One. So this is the one from Young All Stars. Says, "I'm also a huge fan of this of this Fury. A great plug-in for Diana. I especially like the sort of tragic nature of the character. She is Wonder Woman, but she is also the Hulk, becoming a monstrous Fury being. The chainmail suit is a nice design, and I like how the color scheme is riffed on by the daughter." Hm, there you go. Heard from our buddy Siskoid from Siskoid's blog of Geekery and the Legion of Super Bloggers, and he has appeared on this show a couple of times here and, and there. And now he
2: has his own podcast.
1: That's right! That's right. Um, you look up the name while I read. So, <laughs> get on that. Uh, anyway, he goes, If the updates were all chillers and chromas, characters who had recently appeared but didn't have much history, I would have hated these volumes. The forgotten characters like Darwin Jones and Kite Man were just enough to keep me happy totally agree. I totally agree. And for the record, by the way, his podcast is in Lonely fact Lonely Hearts Podcast, Lonely Hearts Romance Podcast. Yes.
2: Well, I'm looking on my phone. It says Lonely Hearts Podcast.
1: Well, you're, you need a wider phone, so because uh, it's the Lonely Hearts. Yes. Anyway, so definitely check that out. I, I got to tell you, I'm not a romance comic guy, so I was going to give the first issue a listen. I'm like, well, you know, I really like Siskoid. He's got a nice style of podcasting for them heard in, in, in places. I'll give it a try. I love it. His group of friends, the way they interact, they bounce off each other and they have fun with these romance comics. It's a hoot. Definitely check out the Lonely Hearts, um, what do I say, Lonely Hearts Romance <laughs> box, Comics Podcast. Definitely check it out.
2: I love the part where he says all his French friends in his, in, in his accent. So cute. Um, <laughs> anyway, in the email he says, The Duke of Oil. I know Rob only says my name at the start of Outsider's entry, so I won't skip ahead. I believe this character became Canada's prime minister. Elections are in October. Let's get the Harper bot out of there.
1: <laughs> uh, he commented about *Flaw and Child*. We we gave *Flaw and Child* the business last time around. Did he said we, they also. I we just ignored them. I
2: don't think we gave them the
1: business. We were just like, "Yeah, next." Okay, well, maybe that's it. I'm just saying we weren't kind, but yeah, okay. okay. Uh, he said they also appeared quite a bit in the *Hawk and Dove* uh, or the *Hank and Dawn* *Hawk and Dove* series. Because that is the end of my commentary on these characters. <laughs> so he too is sort of dismissing them I had forgotten they were in Hawk and Dove that's absolutely true they were then Flying Fox he says one of the few the only Canadian characters in the DC universe at the time an overwhelming number of Canadian superheroes DC or Marvel then and since seem to be natives which probably says something about what comic writers think of my country I don't want to take any superheroes away from the natives obviously and I should be glad the country isn't full of supermounties. but that always seems to be rather limited uh, vision Maybe it's because not even Alpha Flight produced any heroes from the Maritimes. So There you go. Interesting. Maybe it's another reason to build that wall, Rob. Anyway, and he <laughs> says um, what what fans of Who's Who should be called? He came up with Hooters. <laughs> and then, uh, then he says uh, he's, he, he posted a picture on the Legion of Superbloggers, and this is a composite Legion of Superhero character. He's got like one arm of Lightning Lad. He's got the body of Colossal Boy. He's got A leg of Cosmic Man, boy. I mean, CZ's a mess. And he goes, just to show Shag and Rob Kelly how composite Superman could have been way worse. (laughs) (laughs) It's a composite Legionnaire character. So, yeah, boy, you're dead on there, Siskoid. (laughs) Uh, then we heard from uh, Abel Padilla Apparently this composite thing is just keeps going We heard from Abel Padilla and he said The menace of the composite heroes is spreading And he sent us a, the cover To Brave and the Bold number 56 Which is the Flash and Martian Manhunter And it is literally a Composite Flash, Martian Manhunter on the cover. Just like Composite Superman, Flash on one side, Martian Manhunter on the other. It looks like Christmas has come early because it's all red and green, and it's ridiculous. So, it, it's, you guys, you're just sick. You're just sick with this Composite Superman nonsense. And it's not ending here. There's more coming up. So, uh, then we heard from Zoom Yukonari from the line It Is drawn, and the guy who did those amazing Who's Who entries, he talked about Chip. The, uh, the Chipmunk, Green Lantern, he goes, Chip first appeared in a few solo Tales of the Green Lantern Corps backup tales drawn by Don Newton, and he looked like an actual Chipmunk in standard-issue Green Lantern uniform, and he was so cute. He didn't have his cartoony appearance until Joe Staten started drawing him when he appeared in the regular GL title, and then in Green Lantern Corps where he received his Disney-inspired costume designed by Aresia in issue 201. Now, I had talked last time about Frances Kane, and I was sure she had some sort of superhero or supervillain name, and I couldn't come up with it. He said, Shag, you were right about Francis Kane using a superhero code name, which was Magenta, based on the color of her costume. This happened in a two-part story in Teen Titans Spotlights 16 and 17. Because of her powers, it's very easy to misread or misremember the name as Magneta. This costume first appeared in the two-page New Teen Titans Spread in DC Sampler number 2 one of Rob and I's personal favorites, <laughs> though it was colored very differently. Then he goes on to say, speaking of that Kid Flash, en- and kid flash entry, I recall back in the original podcast, meaning Who's Who podcast, uh, of issue number set, uh, 12, Shag had a theory that the brown hair color change was created in Who's Who to explain so-called coloring mistakes, of which there were several. Because they talked about in in, in Wally's Kid Flash entry how he could change his hair color. Because, you know, Wally's a redhead, but they said he had brown hair at different times. So, anyway, because, however, this is not the case. In the Flash volume number 138, the first Kid Flash solo story after he received his new hair revealing uniform in issue 135, it is shown that Kid Flash's costume ring actually contains a hair color spray feature (laughs) to change his hair color from red to brown as an additional identity. Safeguard Which makes me wonder You know Wally must be descended From Johnny Thunder there. I was
2: about to say Why does he just use That dirt that Johnny Thunder <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's not dirt It's like a, I don't know What they call it But it's powder Of some sort Yeah hair powder Or something Yeah Yeah, dirt. And we're not talking About Johnny Thunder From World War 2 We're talking about The old west Johnny no, the Thunder good one. How he would change His hair color uh, yeah. It's so funny Alright <laughs> uh, Zoom also says Not sure about
2: Roy Thomas Writing humor you're referring to me Was he not the writer And co-creator Of the Captain Carrot series I stand by my statement. <gasps> uh, I'm Whoa! sorry. Captain
1: you K- just took a shot at Captain, Captain Carrot. Carrot and you expect Carrot is, to get out of here alive?
2: Captain Carrot is not funny. It's not funny. It's, it doesn't mean it's not you enjoyable, but it's not funny. I'm sorry. Roy, to, to me, Roy Thomas's humor is not one of his strong suits. It just isn't. I'm sorry. That's it. Roy is taking a beating, by the I way. I love Roy Thomas. I've re- read every single issue of All-Star Squadron. I've read all of his JSA stuff. No, 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 no. I and no, I in fact I'm saying that his stuff was just was done in by company politics, basically. So no no no, not at all. No. Okay. All I right. just don't think he can write humor that well. That's all. Uh anyway, we got a message from Earth to Chris, who from the Supermates podcast and my co host on Power Records regarding Catwoman. Davis Catwoman made quite the impact on me at the tender age of twelve. Meow indeed.
1: Oh, that's just too much information. That sound you hear is Cindy slapping him. He talks about the cheetah Because I've often wondered how DC got away With this design at the time Tiger over at Marvel essentially had the same look But she always kept her naughty bits Barely covered by a bikini hmm. Then he talks about Faye Gunn Which was a character from Last issue we covered Where she was that uh, schoolmistress Who was teaching Jason Todd And uh, it was the school of thieves And he goes, Faye Gunn Have I mentioned how much I hated Max Allen Collins' Batman work I mean, Faye Gun teaches kids how to steal, gun Fagin. What an Oliver Twist. Now, I may be the only red-blooded American on the planet that didn't get that pun until I read his comment. Uh, did you get it? I,
2: you know what? Like I re-remembered it. I remember that I read that years ago, and I was like, oh, okay. Those, those, those books are so bad.
1: I, those are the people that like them, but oh, I, man, they're terrible. I can't believe we covered that character. Last month and didn't mention that. I like the minute I read his comment, I'm like, oh god, how did I not see that? Oh, how embarrassing. So, yeah, Fagan. Okay. Uh, back on Flying Fox, he goes, Rascally Roy no doubt remembered that Bruce Wayne had once been called the Flying Fox in a retcon story published in a Superboy adventure in the Silver Age. Young Bruce visits Smallville and dons an orange cowl and cape and helps Superboy out of a out as the mysterious Flying Fox. Roy recounted this epic in World's Finest, number 271, a few years prior to this. So in building an analog, there's the proper word you were looking for, Shag, Roy at least had a name for him. So yes, that explains why uh, Flying Fox would have been the analog for Batman. Very clever. Well done, sir. And then he goes, Fury, uh, Roy did, because we we talked about Fury's first appearance was in Wonder Woman, not in Infinity Ink. This is Fury 2, by the way. He said, Roy did create the Infinity Ink uh, Fury as he and I believe his wife Dan wrote Wonder Woman number 300 so he pulled from his own inventory when selecting her for his junior JSA we are from Michael Ciaroscuro about Commissioner Gordon he said Gordon certainly deserved an entry and this one is superb Rob nailed it when he pointed out how brilliantly Mazzuchelli drew the woman in the serpent with basically three or four lines brilliant. As someone who's drawn most of his life, I've always struggled with the less is more approach and always envied artists that can make it work. Mazzuchelli is a master of the drawing philosophy. Then he talked about Electric Warrior. He said, to me, that will always be an absolutely awesome T-Rex album. I'm positive that has to be where DC got the idea for the name of this character. That's awesome. A couple other people mentioned the T-Rex connection as well.
2: Yeah. He also mentions, hmm, just heard the listener feedback portion and Chad calling me out for my Batman and the Outsiders love. Now I really might have to threaten to start that battle blog. And then I responded to Michael, if there was a battle blog, I'm not saying I would contribute, but I'm not saying I wouldn't.
1: I, I'm still waiting. It's been two months, and <laughs> I've seen no sign of this. So your your threats are hollow, Michael Kuroskiro. I'm calling you out. Oh, boy. Calling you and the Duke of Oil out. <laughs> Bring it. All right. We heard from Jeff R. He said, so – for the omission of the month, Jeff always provides us with our uh, egregious omission of the month, and he said with the updates, they're not really egregious as much, so it's just the omission of the month. This time we have General Wade Eiling, you know, the Captain Adam antagonist who actually has a future in the DC Universe. It's not like people couldn't have realized that at the time. They ought to have just done a new Fatal Five, and then he goes on to say, they ought to have just done a new Fatal Five page in this issue, rather than giving Caress and Mentalia pages. And then he mentions Gangbuster and Film Freak as other potential ones. You know, he's onto something with uh, General Wade Isling. He should have got a page. He's right about that. So.
2: All right. Uh, from, uh, we got a message from Anthony Dershow, aka The Toy Room, and uh, regarding the ongoing conversation about Batman Year One and Dark Knight Returns. Batman Year One still stands the test of time, one of the greatest Batman stories ever told. Batman The Dark Knight Returns, although still seminal and groundbreaking, seems a bit dated when reread today. But I still remember the excitement when I stumbled across that first issue at Ravenswood Comics. It was nothing like I had ever read in a Batman story.
1: Same for me. I mean, I read it in 88, 89, and just blew me away. And then my my 15 year old read it not too long ago. And I mean, he was just like, this is amazing. Because, you know, when you're that age, that's exactly the kind of dark dystopian comic you want to read, you know? It's just as we get older that we're kind of like, eh, not so much. So, still a great story. And don't get me wrong, it's amazing. But it's, you know, again, Batman, like he said, Batman Year One seems more timeless. So. Uh Church of Blood. If you're remotely interested in Elizabeth Bathory, check out the Hammer Horror film, Countess Dracula, starring Ingrid Pitt. It should mm. score some points with Shag simply on the basis of Pitt's hotness Oh, you ain't kidding. Now, Anthony, I will tell you that based on your comment, I did Google a little Google images search of Ingrid Pitt. <sighs> and I have to say thank you. <laughs> wow. Smoking hot. Crazy smoking hot. Uh Dr. Ubix, who we did spend some time. Uh, attacking last time, which is another, uh, he was a beaver, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. He was a beaver, anthropomorphic beaver, Green Lantern related character tied in with Chip, who we just we had no patience for. He said he, that Dr. Ubix was actually named after Ube Illworks, an early animator who was a co creator of Oswald the Rabbit and Mickey Mouse with Walt Disney. Huh. I
2: did not know that. Had I known that, I would have shown Dr. Ubix some more respect, because that's really cool.
1: And the more I read about Chip and Doctor Ubix in these comments, and I've I've highlighted a few of them for us to talk about, I do have a lot more respect for these characters. Even though I, I love Chip anyway, but um, there's there's a lot there's a lot more going on there than was obvious on the surface to us. Let's put it that way. Uh, on Electric Warrior, he said, "Boy." DC did everything and anything they could to make this more into something. Doug Mensch wasn't firing on all cyn- cylinders with a lot of his new concepts: Electric Warrior, Slash, Maraud, Lords of the Underrealm, U- Ultra Realms. I didn't know you, was <laughs> I didn't know who's responsible for so much trash. Um, DC did a lot of crazy stuff back then. Well, it's great. I I found on the internet. I was I was walking along with my friend Tor, and I found an S group cluster, and it had everything like Spanner's Galaxy, Slash Maraud, Silver Blade, you know, just all these S-type... Sonic Disruptors. Right, yeah, yeah. All of them. i just like, wow, I've forgotten how many of these things DC put out back then in the 80s. Wow! And they're all apparently to start with S, so...
2: Anyway. we um, also mentions Flair. Wow, I've never known Rob to talk at such length positively about a Legion character. She was hot. It was she a was nice pr- character. It was cool. So, you you know, were
1: distracted because she was hot. <laughs> no. <laughs> we were talking about Flying Fox earlier and uh, I think it was Chris who was talking about the, that Batman story with Superboy well, um, we're still on Anthony, right? yeah, Anthony came back and said it was Adventure Comics 275 where Superboy meets a young Bruce Wayne who was operating under the identity of Flying Fox so, what that is, if you want to read the original story go to Adventure Comics 275 and you want to see the retelling, go to World's Finest I think it was 271, check them out Then, Anthony was actually live-tweeting the episode, which is cool. I love it when people do that. And here's a couple of comments for him. On the cheetah, he said, I wonder if George Perez got a higher page rate than other artists for Who's Who. If not, he should have. Hmm. That's a very interesting observation. Given the number of entries he did, maybe, I don't know. Then he said under Darkwing, Darkwing, Darkwing. Darkwing only had one glove. And I, I did. <laughs> and he wrote, "Michael Jackson never truly realized how far his one-glove influence reached." <laughs> <laughs> oh, dark wings. <laughs> um, regarding Doctor
2: Spectro, the Charlton version of the costume wasn't much better, and he actually sent an old Captain Adam cover from the Charlton days of Doctor Spectro in a cover that can only in a costume that can only be described as
1: festive. <laughs> he looks like a uh, like a clown threw up. Um, I I tell you, I thought this was like when I look at that costume. Doesn't it look like Rainbow Raider's costume? Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, no, so. yeah, you're right. It's got, it's got like a
2: black tunic. Yeah, you're right. Yeah.
1: So heard from our buddy Joe X, and uh, he mentioned about Chip. He said Gerard Jones actually regretted what he did to Chip and Mosaic. So. Then this blew my mind. I actually had to go to the Googles and check this because Joe doesn't give any citations or anything. and I was like, what? Did he make that up? But he says, Chroma, who we had a lot to say about last time, shockingly, was retconned into being a new god just in time to be killed. And I was like, well, what? And I looked it up. Sure enough, this is all true. Apparently, Chroma was retconned to be a new god. So, whatever. Um, he said, that Dr. Midnight costume, and now we're talking about Dr. Midnight 2, the the female doctor, was designed, and I, the costume was a little unusual, and he says, the costume was designed by Todd McFarlane. It was based on a choir robe, which is interesting, given that one of the comments we made was about her family. Like, she had a bunch of siblings, and they all had names from the Bible. So, uh, it kind of all fits. He says, uh, Jackson Geis, for some reason, always drew Wally's head way too small in the costume. And thanks for mentioning Bill Mestner lobes who wrote some great Wally stories that have fallen through the cracks. He did. I liked that era of of The Flash. That's uh, when I first started reading The Flash, was Bill Messner-Lobes era. Heard from our buddy Aaron Head Moss, who does the Head Speaks podcast, Task Force X podcast, and G.I. Joe, a real American Headcast. He said, I like how when you guys are going through the pages, Shag mentions any podcasts associated with the characters. See? See, Rob?
2: Who are you arguing with?
1: You from two months ago. Okay.
2: Uh, He says, also, while not who's who related, I wanted to congratulate Rob on your film and water podcast. I'm enjoying listening to you talk about these movies. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate that very much.
1: I have to say, when you and Mike Gillis got together to talk about the Blues Brothers, and if I've said this on the air before, I apologize, but it really stuck with me. The joy coming out of you guys talking about that movie – literally bled through the earphones. Like, I'm infected. I haven't watched that movie in years, and so I'm like, I have got to watch that movie again soon. And it was just – it was infectious, your enthusiasm for that film. So I, I think you're onto something with this film podcast, and I'm just you know looking forward to trying out new co hosts for Fire and Water so I can get rid of you, move you along. <laughs> <laughs> I hear Ange isn't busy. He's only like a <laughs> doctor or something. Right.
2: Uh, we got a message from Michael Bailey who was live tweeting, and he made mention of that. He says, I agree with Firestorm fan. Batman Year One is better than Dark Knight Returns, but only by his safety. Aquaman Shrine has good taste. I'm assuming that's some sort of sports reference. I don't yeah. know that. So safety's okay. two points. Yeah, I know. I was kidding. Oh, okay. <sighs> I don't know. Maybe you weren't. We really do need to rehearse these sketches before we do them.
1: You're you're always opposed to the sketches. For yeah, the record, yeah. You're always. Like, oh, I don't want to do the sketch. You you're gonna have to do all the talking. <laughs> I always have to do the sketch. <laughs> so I didn't know you were doing a bit. That sounds just like me. You don't. It does. You don't do bits. Anyway, by the way, Michael Bailey, good. you want to give him a little credit for views in the long box from Crisis to Crisis, Tales of the JSA? Oh, who doesn't I, know that at this point? We could go on and on and on. <laughs> anyway, he said, uh, for the for the love of God and all that is holy, do not read the Charlton $6 million comics. It's awful. $6 million man comics. I'm sorry, $6 million man comics. So um, thank you for the heads up because actually I was very interested in finding those $6 million man yeah, comics. Don't, don't bother. And, now I no, know yeah. to avoid that. The Thank bottom. you very much.
2: Uh, we got a message from Jose Rivera. Uh, Darkwing, dear God, my eyes hurt just looking at this thing. He <laughs> reminds me of the toys grandparents would find for kids on the shelves in pharmacies. <laughs> that made me laugh so hard because it's so true. It's he's like, right. I, he's so right. It's like these off-brand characters, yeah. yeah like, and you would get it, you know, for like your grandparents pick it up for like two thirty-nine. Like, it's a weird price. Very oh shady. yeah. Yeah, I laughed so hard when I read that. It sure looks like Hawkman. When you a closer inspection, you see it's nothing more than a cheap figure with a similar mold, horrible paint job, and you, you die a little inside every time you look at it. Either that, or Thanagar has leather bars. We're not aware. Of.
1: <laughs> Could be the
2: last one too. <laughs> Fantastic!
1: It's all those Mexican imports, you know. Uh, Frank is a, loves to collect images of the Mexican import action figures. The
2: oh, I have a whole section on the shrine of bootlegs. Oh, do you? They're okay. So fun. They're just all the paint chipped and. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jose Jose wrote us again and went on to say. While well, listening to the latest Who's Who podcast, I was both surprised and overjoyed to hear the shout-out uh, on the All-Star Squadron binding I had just done. Thank you guys for the kind words. It was your episode of the History of the DC Universe that gave me the idea to turn the two-page All-Star Squadron image into the wraparound cover. Now, this is the bi- when he got all his issues of All-Star Squadron bound into these gorgeous hardcover books. It goes on to say, my only gripe is no yellow dot award for Jose? Seriously? What does a guy have to do to get one around here? I see how it goes, though. I guess it's going to take a Who's Who binding to get one, and believe me, I will get a Yellow Dot award. In all seriousness, I do plan on having... Check this out. This is is a testament to how far this man's willing to go. I want to see pictures if he goes this far. In all seriousness, I do plan on having Who's Who bound into another three-volume set, which would include the first volume, both updates and Who's Who in the Legion. What I'd like to do when all three books come in is to place a small pocket on the inside cover and place a CD with the episode's meaning of the Who's Who podcast, pertaining to each issue in the book inside is a companion piece. <laughs> OMG. I can't believe this. Dude, if you do this and you put our podcast, now, you know what he could do? You could just take a picture of a CD. We'd have no idea what's really on uh, Inside your book, dude, I, you will definitely earn a Yellow Dot Award. I promise you that. So
2: I will make this offer. I have not rehearsed it with Shag. If you it's, do that, Jose, no, it's not a bit. This is a real thing, Jose. If you do that, you go to that length. We will invite you to come on a hoozoo episode. I think that's. I think that feels like a, a proper reward.
3: Wow.
2: Maybe not a whole episode. Maybe Good we'll. Lord, just, no, are you kidding? Maybe we'll just have you on for like two pages of the Legion Whozoo and Legion because Lord knows I don't want to do those books, but something like that. We we yeah. need to give you some special reward for that level of dedication.
1: You know, by opening the door here, you know, not, not. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying problem with who's with Jose, but you know, we could just get all kinds of people begging to get on the show now. This, this might, this might not go well for us. I am desperately looking for people to fill in for me for the who's who and Legion. I keep telling you, I have a plan. Okay. Anyway, fair enough. I uh, heard from Harlan Freilicker Now, you know, on Facebook, it, it like it lets you post a previous memory. It says like this is what you were doing a year ago. I hate you can those post things. It. Okay. Well, this is good. Harlan posted one from a year ago, September 16th, 2014. He's talking about his son. He goes, also tonight, my son came up with the name Skyman for a superhero, which meant I got to tell him about the Skyman from DC Comics, which meant he asked me to Google up a picture of Skyman, which means I got to tell him about Skyman's team, Infinity Inc., which made me very, very happy. That's very sweet. That's great. And, And Harlan is an Infinity Inc. fan, so, I mean, that's really cool. Then, one year later... Harlan, when he posts that, this is the update to September 16th, 2015. He goes, "I've avoided teaching. <laughs> I've avoided teaching him about Northwind so far. <laughs> He'll learn soon enough that some characters suck." <laughs> I followed up, of course, with, "Might as well teach him about Jericho at the same time. Soften the blow by killing two losers with one stone." <laughs> but uh, oh god, Harlan cracks me up with his Northwind passion. It's just so funny. I uh, heard from Count Druncula. That bastard who runs the Secret Origins podcast, Flowers and Fish Knots, and Death, uh, Dead Both and Spies. By the way, I have officially decided um, because you know, we, we you did the Aquaman Shrine, I did Firestorm fan. He comes you know chasing behind us with this Black Canary blog. We do who's who. He comes chasing behind us with Secret Origins. I have decided that Ryan Daly is um, to me he, he's Oliver Queen to my Bruce Wayne is what it boils down to. You know that's that's end end of story. So. Anyway, uh, he says, uh, can you imagine if Mazzuchelli had stayed on Batman during the Max Allen Collins and Jim Starlin run? Instead of merely streamlining the Cape Crusader's origin, he could have redefined the entire look and feel of the character going forward the way John Byrne did for Superman. And there's some follow-ups to that, just basically people saying that that blew their mind. And really, could you imagine if he had done Batman for like a year or something like that? What that would have looked like, what that would have done for Batman in the, in the 80s and 90s?
2: I've I've always said there's a scene in Batman Year One, the one where um, all those like, Gotham fat cats are eating dinner, mm-hmm. and then Batman cuts the lights and throws yeah. a smoke bomb, yeah, and then it blows a hole in the side of the wall, and there's that great full page shot of Batman. It's just a silhouette, and he's like, ladies and gentlemen, you know, you've been feeding off of Gotham for years, and you know, as starting now, your feast is over. And then he he puts the lid on the the flame. That's like cooking some food, and it puts the lights out. And I have said that if they ever made a Batman movie, that would be a great preview. Just that scene, like just make put that scene in the movie, and just make that the preview. Just you know, you don't have to show any other scenes. Just show that, because to me, like that is the epitome of Batman. That sequence. I mean, it's written by Frank Miller, but it's so brilliantly brought to light by Mezzocelli. But yeah, that's an interesting idea of like what could have been done if Mezzocelli had chosen to stay on Batman past those four issues. Would have
1: been. So it's really amazing. It would have been astonishing, yeah, and it could have changed the direction of Batman for years. Maybe. Now, I have to go back to your statement. I'm really hung up on the fact that you started that statement with "if they ever made a Batman movie." Okay, I meant that. <laughs> you know what I meant. I meant a Batman. Okay. I
2: meant like that kind of Batman movie where they I- literally just made Batman Year One. I know Batman Begins was close, but not exactly the same. There's there's been like eight Batman movies so far. Has there been? Really? Yeah, Yeah, there has. I saw the one in the...
1: The the
2: 1966. Yeah,
1: I saw the one in the 60s. Batman, uh, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, uh, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises... Now you got this Superman Batman movie and the like fifteen more with oh, with Daredevil or whatever. All news to me. I don't know. I've yeah. been watching the
2: Blues Brothers too much. Okay. Uh, Ken, Ryan also mentions if Duke of Oil doesn't become a villain on Arrow, Flash, or Supergirl, or Retroactive take back everything good thing I said about those shows. <laughs> <laughs> He's a perfect for a show like Arrow with its conservative take on costumes and its love hate relationship with its wealthy elite plus robot hands.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be fun. That'd be fun. Her from Boston Moss. I He's already like, know who
2: would play him, too. I've already. I, we'll have to put that in the, in the Tumblr. I forgot the actor that would play Duke.
1: Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, Boston Moss, he said, Fury, the pet kangaroo. Because I wondered, in, in Fury 2, Electric Boogaloo, there was a drawing of a kangaroo. And I'm like, what the F? What is that? And he said, the pet kangaroo was a tribute to the original Wonder Woman's origin. When the Amazons were first introduced, they were shown riding giant kangaroos like knights on horseback. Fury's pet was one of these that was obviously not full grown. She sent a pair of these, and I'm sorry, she was sent a pair of these, and one of them was inadvertently killed by Mr. Bones. (laughs) That bastard, he kills everybody. Nobody was safe in the Infinity Inc., I tell you. Her friend, our buddy Bradley Null, who, by the way, is a big supporter of, of the Who's Who show over on Instagram, we really appreciate that. He says, Chip is badass in his first appearance, and then gets his history erased by Crisis, and then goes a bit feral before being murdered on Mosaic World. Yeah, he was drawn like Mickey when this came out, but I choose to believe that he was just being nice to the teen who made the costume. <laughs> I think that's funny, like this feral you know, chipmunk who's just being nice to the pretty hot, cute teenage girl because she made his clothes, but he was willing to let her dress him up like Mickey Mouse. That's funny.
2: We got a message from Jeff Nettleton. He says, Hi guys, another fun episode. Anything that starts out with Alan Davis drawing an ultra sexy Catwoman is 10 kinds of awesome. Jim Ballant had nothing on Davis. Yeah, Jim Ballant. Uh, you know what? Yeah. Well, I'll, let me just agree with that statement. Let's move
1: on. I, I was going to say something similar, but you know what? I, like, I think you're right. We'll just leave that as a, an axiom. You are correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he says, so is Darkwing a big Bullwinkle fan or just a member of the Elks Club? <laughs> I about fell out of my chair when I read that.
2: Hooky <laughs> <Hulkie> smoke, Bullwinkle.
1: <laughs> oh, Dar- Darkwing is, I think he may have supplanted Nodar as the <laughs> ultimate mort. I think it's quite possible. I don't know. Uh, or at least maybe he's the ultimate opposite character. Cause you know, like a lot of characters you have, like the dark mirror kind of character, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, for firestorm, it would be, you know, uh, death storm and whatever. So he's like the, the dark mirror of Hawkman. It may just be the best version of that ever. It says Darwin Jones needs an arch enemy. How about creationist Smith, <laughs> which I found very funny. That was funny. All right, uh, then jumping ahead, Tom Painter-Reese, who does the pop culture affidavit podcast in-country and did the does the uh, or did the defunct Taking Flight podcast about Robin, uh, I had asked again about Francis Kane. And he said, Francis Kane is a character that DC was trying to make happen at one time or another. Sure, she was Wally's ex-girlfriend, but in reading those old Titan issues, they always tried to make her seem like she was important, but there aren't any stories that don't involve her whining at Wally. She gets that costume out of nowhere towards the end of that interminable brother blood storyline of the new Teen Titans in about nineteen eighty six or so. And her first appearance after this issue of Who's Who is a mediocre two parter in Teen Titans Spotlight, a series that was never as good as it could have been. She has the Nagenta, always had that name, even though it's the first time as far as I know, anyone had called her that. Hm. Interesting thing. So she's um uh, she's the character she she was the not ready for prime time player, I guess, with the Teen Titans. <laughs> Then we heard from Tim Walter, buddy. This courtier He a fun side note in a shameless blog promo. I just covered appearances by Killer and, and the director and Booster Gold number nine over at the Legionist Bloggers. Nice, well, sir. Well done. Then we heard from Wolfgang Hartz. He says it's interesting that Chroma came to Earth in the, this really good five just before the crisis would wipe it out. Did Chroma know about the upcoming event? And if so, it was cleverly foreshadowed by Roy Thomas. That's a great question. You know, maybe Chroma doing that, that was all intentional. I don't know. Probably giving them a little too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> I heard from our buddy Martin Gray, who runs the two, danger, two Dangerous for a Girl blog. You can find that at dangermart.blogspot.co.uk. Oh, those British people I've got to make it so complicated with all that stuff at the end of their URLs. But anyway, because, uh, much as I revere him, I ha- oh, I'm sorry, it's, he's Scottish. The Scottish people with all their stuff at the end of the URLs. So anyway, much as I revere him, actually he's from Naboo, right, where the, the Gungans are from. Isn't that where he's from? Oh, what? Yeah. Anyway, much as I revere him, I have to point out that Alan Davis draws ridiculous women's hair. Like a 1940s meringue. And that is one, one very tardy Catwoman still. That's when DC were making her a hooker. <laughs> so uh, he makes a point about the hair being a little crazy. Yeah, that's a good point. He comes up with a who's who fan suggestion of Hoovers, which is pretty for sure vacuum cleaner, I think. But, and he says the best decay was the early version from the daring new adventures of Supergirl. And with that, Ange just woke back up. <laughs> And he says, I liked Flaw and Child, but I think I'm in an amethyst. <laughs> he goes, and I think I'm in an amethyst letter call saying as much. Well, I can't imagine they were getting too much mail by that point, Mart. so uh, you probably were getting published. They heard from Kyle Benning from King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. He said, with regards to Wally West and how long he'd been around, yes, he did make his first appearance in just the sixth issue of the Revive Flash comic series, number 110, from 1959. Yeah, Wally's been around since 1959, folks. And he says, so far as where that puts Kid Flash, with other DC Silver Age mainstays, Wally West appeared seven months before Rip Hunter, Time Master, three months before three months, right, three months after Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, two months before the Justice League was formed, seven months before Shag's favorite team, the Sea Devils, debuted, fourteen months before Katar Hall, Hawkman debuted, twenty-one months before Ray Palmer, the Atom. Uh, and other DC Silver Age characters and teams that Wally beat to the punch include Metal Men, Enemy Ace, Doom Patrol, and many more. So yeah, here's the most important statement: Yeah, Shag was right, and holy crap, Wally's been around for a long time. All publication dates, courtesy of Mike's Amazing World DC Comics. Uh, and he goes, and so I mean that that goes to tell you what we were talking about with Wally and the respect he deserves. He's one of DC's oldest characters, and yet now he's just pff, you know shoved to the side because they see him as redundant with Barry. Um, I know there's a new version of him out there but they threw away all the history that goes back all the way to
0: 1959
1: Ugh. and he goes uh, then I re he goes, I reread one of Shag and Rob's favorite stories this morning it's more of this composite Superman nonsense from Super Team Family, you people are sick, sick people, you all need to seek help immediately heard from our, our buddy Philemon, and if you don't know anything about Philemon the one thing you need to take away is usually the opposite of whatever he says is true He says, lots of Booster Booster Gold love in this issue. Gold Star, the director, and even Chiller are beloved characters to me that I would love to see used more often. Trixie, in particular, is one of my favorites. Um, Okay, that statement wasn't too crazy. I can get on board with that. He goes, I think each of us have our own collections within our collections. All of us collect comics, but maybe we focus on Superman comics or the like. My collection within a collection are the 80s DC Baxter books. Titans, Outsiders, Omega Men, Vigilante, I want them all. And all in uh, all that just to say that although they're part of the beloved—I'm sorry, hold on—I'm gonna get this right. All of that to say that although they are part of that beloved process, I have never picked up an issue of Electric Warrior, and I likely never will. Nothing in that series interested me. <laughs> it says I loathe the Lords of Order and Chaos nonsense and everything associated with it. But with that being said, I have to admit that the art on Flaw and Child entry is my favorite in the issue. Some nice work from Ernie Colon there. Okay, now we're starting to delve into some crazy talk there. Because I wanted to mention that this podcast has inspired my summer reading. After last episode, I dug up my issues of Young All-Stars, which were average as I had remembered them being. Uh, ostensibly because Roy Thomas was trying to make the best of a bad situation instead of indulging in his Golden Age passion as he did with All Star Squadron. I'm now halfway through Blue Beetle and have already encountered Fire Fist, Carapax, and seen a glimpse of Catalyst. Some good stuff there. I suppose after this episode, I'll have to track down some Justice League core issues to catch up on the Chip saga. And next thing you know, he'll be reading about Darkwing from Hawkman. <laughs> the Chip Saga. Uh, over on the Secret
2: Origins podcast blog, Dabu Frank mentions, uh, regarding Mayan show, this podcast is like last week tonight, the Who's Who Daily Show, except you drop three hours on us every week to there every sixth or so. I still wish you'd break the issues in half for a more leisurely hundred episode run, but the Fire and Water Podcast can take comfort slash for a warning that I'll return to regularly comment vomiting there
1: by the summer of twenty sixteen. <laughs> And I, I posed the question I was like, I think it's funny But is that a compliment? I wasn't sure So Ryan clarified for me He said, last week tonight Wouldn't exist in a world without the Daily Show But John Oliver took all the wonderful things He learned from John Stewart And crafted something much richer and smarter Less commercially viable to the mainstream And less beholden to the stupidity of everyday political science The Who's Who podcast is the headline news show Well, Secret Origins does the longer in-depth features Also, I guess I'm more pasty and British so, there you go. Apparently, we are The Daily Show's uh, big big splash. And so, do we need to start doing a moment of zen, I suppose?
2: I, I'll take that. That's all right. That's a, okay. You
1: know, yeah. All right. Then we heard uh, more from Diablo Frank. By the way, Diablo Frank can be found on a number of podcasts, just to name a couple. The Marvel Superheroes Podcast, The Idol Head of Diablo, The Underguides, and many more. Now, he actually took the live tweeting this episode, too, which is something new for Frank. He said, Perez Cheetah wore an animal skin as part of her transformational ritual and presumably absorbed that covering, hence no nipples, because that was something that was really bothering me last episode. <laughs> uh, and he says, "You guys already forgot about Mazzucchelli's Riddler.
2: I thought I mentioned it right at the time. though I thought I said, I thought I. I, I think I f-
1: think you came. I think at first we didn't, but before we finished the entry, remember? Yeah, so I don't know what so, Frank's
2: doing. What well, he's, he's live
1: tweeting, that. so maybe he posted. Oh, it. I see. Okay. Yeah. All right. uh, he says, Dome artist, because we talked about the artist uh, Ken Penders who drew the dome, went on to infamy as one of the primary creators on Archie's Sonic comics who sued Sega over copyrights.'" <laughs> Interesting. Uh, All-Star Squadron number 80, I'm sorry, All-Star Squadron 1984 circulation was around 69,000. Well below cancellation level, and it lingered three more years. Final issues of All-Star Squadron sold about six to 7,000 through Capital City Distribution. Now keep in mind that number six to 7,000 would be through Capital City, so there's also the newsstand, there's a lot of other places people were buying the comics so that's not the final numbers, but you can see how dramatically it dropped. Young All-Star sold twice that in its first year, equaled by, um, by year two and three. Hmm. Then he gave us some suggestions for names for fans. He said Hoosiers, too close to a sports team. "Hoosers," yes, even lady fans. And okay, fine. who Hoonatics. Hmm. <laughs> then he goes on to say, if who's, and this is in his comments. If Who's Who Volume 1 was the DC universe in its full early adolescent glory, ranging from extra goofy kid fare through youthful pretensions through pseudo-sophistication not yet reached, the updates are the first awkward steps into puberty. These issues are zit-faced and attitudinal with bad hair, unfortunate bold sardonic misfires, and a questionable hygiene. Volume 1 is Dick Grayson, while the updates are Danny Chase. I kind of hate them, especially their inferior covers. You know, that statement is like a perfect encapsulation of everything about Frank right there. I just, that I love that. I had to read that even though, you know, it wasn't necessary, but it just fit him so well. Calling us Danny Chase, though, that is rough. <laughs> well, the updates, not us. Well, wow, still. He says, Chiller is a poor man's clayface married to a Bronze Age mercenary type like the Taskmaster or Deathstroke, but nowhere near as cool and capable. He's a Dengar on his best day. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of dig that, but I tend to forget his dude exists. He says, uh, Deimos and Phobos serve their purpose as early Perez Wonder Woman villains who showed off her warrior proudness by being cut to pieces. Uh, you will know, f- you will know fear at the sight of a flung era. Uh, I'll, I'll say both entries are over-rendered. So my eyes glaze at them, uh, side by side as I move on. Yeah, it's fair to say.
2: Uh, he says, Glad you guys applaud Dr. Moon because is he, could he be? Well, yes, Dr. Moon is a Bronze Age Wonder Woman villain, you mothers. Plus he debuted in a so-called white jumpsuit, she only occasionally wore white, non-powered period I have great fondness for, plus Dr. Cyber. That is one rigid blah entry though, and the logo is 80s black and white boom bad. (laughs) I think if we had really thought about that it was a golden bronze age Wonder Woman film, we wouldn't have been so complimentary
1: oh snap Uh, Dr. Ubix, this goes back to the Chip and Dr. Ubix saga we were talking about was the sympathetic villain in a quality Steve Englehart story where his light-hearted funny animal adventure strip antics were used to demonstrate the destruction of genre opportunities in the post-crisis DCU basically he went from being Chip's nemesis to the only other being in the universe who could understand their mutual loss of Disney style existence in favor of a new grim DC comics aren't for kids anymore reality Rob's so busy dismissing the character that he falls right into the stereotype of an intolerant fanboy with no use for sugar and spike of pre-crisis publishing. Interesting interesting observation that – so Chip and Dr. Ubix is an effort to show – that funny animal heroes And what we've lost I guess is a way to say it What we've lost as readers With the lack of funny animal characters I,
2: I will admit I was a little harsh on Chip And Dr. Obux I, I think we were recording really late I was super tired and I was like What am I doing with my life I'm spending my <laughs> sleepless hours Looking at uh, Chipmunks in, in overalls With Green Lantern rings So yeah I think, I think uh, I, I'm not going to go overboard But I think I, I regret a little being Quite as dismissive of them as, as I was
1: I didn't realize there was such depth to the characters. So, you know, it's makes it a lot, makes them a lot more interesting to me. It says, Fire Fist was drawn by John Peterson, who thankfully uh, traded in his black pencils for blue as an editor who uh, revitalized the Titans franchise and then left abruptly and took Kevin McGuire with him to launch the creator-owned strikeback, thus ruining the Titans franchise through his absence. Seriously, the three titles in the line soon imploded and planned projects like the Art T. Bear and Nightwing Starfire miniseries fell apart. Gee, all those sentences about Peterson and not another word about Firefist I, I, you know I didn't realize, put all that together but yeah, Peterson leaving really did cause the whole Titans thing to fall apart Yeah, good point Uh, The problem with Infinity Incorporated wasn't that it got screwed over by the Crisis The problem was that it was a prefabricated team with a mono-dimensional characterization that only had the conceit of Children of JSA to prop it up Fury was never worth a damn as a character but she once had the promise of being Wonder Woman's daughter. And without that, she was a throwaway. Neil, uh, she was a throwaway Neil Gaiman could use as he saw fit, and only bothered because of the Sandman connection. Thanks to a strong origin and association with some dark myths, the original Fury of World War II proved a much stronger prospect than her daughter-slash-namesake, and it turned up in Jimenez's uh, Wonder Woman run.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, he says, uh, I was wrong about Alan was working on the second mini miniseries because I let headcanon confuse my facts. See, years ago, Rob Kelly promoted an appearance in an article for comic book artists where fans considered a post-crisis DC universe by different creative teams. I was very intrigued by the premise, but then the magazine actually came out, and with the exception of Rob, they were just variations on unattainable big-name comic artists on the most obvious iconic characters. Yeah, Frank is uh, – Frank. I just called him Frank. Frank is referring <laughs> to the fact that, that he thought that it was Alan Davis true, the second man, second Aquaman, when it wasn't. He did the first. So, And there is some concept art. You can see it in an original drawing that Alan Davis did uh, in, in Aquaman in the camo suit, and it is beautiful looking. I wouldn't give up Craig Hamilton for anything, but it would have been amazing to see an Alan Davis miniseries drawn by, Aqu- uh, and Alan Davis
1: mini-series drawn by Aquaman. It's very late. <laughs> All right. I'm going to trip hammers through some comments towards the end here. Zeb Oswald said, I liked Dr. Midnight, but she was more their doctor than a hero. She and Our Man 2 kissed once, thought it would build something for them, but nope. Wow, wonder if Liberty Bell takes issue with that. I don't know. Van Z said, "Great episode. Love all things Young All Stars." I think Who's Who fans should be called Owls. Why? Who? (laughs) Who? Chuck Rodriguez. He says, "It looks like Jim Gordon is striking a James Bond pose on that cover." I approve. Dale Russell said, "Great catwoman, greatest Catwoman costume ever." Matthew Thomas Cody said, uh, in reference to an old Who's Who episode, he said El Diablo has since spawned a thick burger at Hardee's. <laughs> which cracked me up. For those of you on the other side of the world, uh, that would be a Carl Jr.'s. But anyway, uh, Secret HQ actually sent a tweet to Patrick Zercher, which is an inker who actually worked on books like uh, Future Zen and stuff like that. He uh, basically promoted our Who's Who podcast to Patrick Zercher. So thank you so much for that, Secret HQ. James Garratton sent a nightmarish picture. Uh, to us about, he said, Update 87, Dr. Midnight? Yes, some of us do wear spandex all the time, or most of the time. Thanks for that, James. I can never unsee that. Um, that was a picture of himself in spandex, by the way, is what it was. Uh, Dr. G, the man of neurology, who does the Pulp to Pixel podcast about Astro City, said, Fire Fist was the kind of character you would make the first time you played a superhero role playing game. <laughs> Dude, you are so dead on with that. That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Mark Sweeney, he said, Chip. Hmm, he looks awful squirrel-like here in this awesome Don Newton art. And he sent us an image of Don Newton art of Chip from the Green Lantern Corps. Sure enough, he looks exactly like a squirrel, looks nothing like Chipmunk. chipmunk. So. Michel Fief, a uh, famous comic book writer, said, Mazzuccelli did Marvel fanfare and an X-Factor issue fill-in after Batman Year One. So that's, those are probably worth looking up.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to picture him drawing X-Factor. I just yeah, can't
1: imagine be. that.
2: Uh, David H. Gutierrez says, And what's the big topic for this
1: issue? Cheetah's lack of nipples. Do not disappoint, Shag.
2: Woo!
1: And I take a bow. So, all right. Um, since Rob didn't highlight these, I guess I have to do it. Thanks so much. That's right. These are folks that were kind enough, and I do mean this, incredibly generous. They have actually taken the Who's Who show... And posted on their own social media timelines or sites or whatever. So whether through retweeting or sharing or talking about it themselves, whatever, they have taken the time to promote our show through their own social media. And I'm not just talking about likes and favorites. I mean they genuinely, you know, put it out there on their timeline. Thank you. So running through these as quick as I can. Our buddy Ange, Army of Skanks, Between the Pages, BoosterRific.com, Buck Roulette, Buck Roulette, Chuck Rodriguez, Clinton Robinson, Darren Aru Sutherland. Daredevil, who's Professor Animity, uh, DC Comics Cult, DC Comic Fans, DC in the 80s, Derek Crabb, Diablo Frank, Dr. G, the Man of Neurology, Fanhole's Podcast, Floto Span, Hero Fans, Jeffrey Brown, Joe Slab, <laughs> Keep Iris Black, I didn't know that was a thing, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Kylie 071, Luke Dobb, Marcus Spath, Martin Gray, Michael Bailey, Mikey Flash, Mr. Perturbed, Paul Loves Comics, Pedro Angasto. Randy Caldwell, Resurrections, and Adam Warlock Podcast, Robert Lewis, Selena Kyle, Silvio, Siskoi, SD, SPD Ranger, Speed Force, Sin, The Flash Podcast, The Hammer Strikes, The Lantern Cast, The Penultimate, Tony D, Trans-Diana Prince, Trekker Talk, Whole Truthy, and Zeb Oswald. And folks, um, time for the Yellow Dot Award. Rob, uh, here's the problem. Zooms aren't it. With, with Aquarab and with the, the Domino, he's absolutely earned it. But he, unfortunately, he's no longer eligible. I don't know if you remember, a couple months ago, we said that he won the Lifetime Achievement Yellow Dot Award. Mm. So he could never get one. But I'll tell you what, I snuck one into his backpack before I sent him off to school this morning. So good on you, Zoom. Take it. Don't tell anybody. Don't show it at school. And you earned it, buddy. You really did. Congratulations. Woo! That's it. In the books, man. Another three hours down. <laughs> Three hours of our life and yours—you're never going to get back. Right. All right, Rob. So, if you would, please tell the folks at home where they can go online and see some of the images from this "Who's Who" issue. Where? What's the Tumblr?
2: Fire Fire and Water Podcast Tumblr dot com. The blog is Fire and Water Podcast and the email is firewaterpodcast Podcast at Comcast dot net.
1: Awesome. You can find my friend Rob over at AquamanShrine.net. He's also on Facebook and Twitter under the same handle. You can find me at FirestormFan.com. You can find me under that same handle on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, Tumblr, and Pinterest. Maybe. And um, I think that's it. Right?
2: I think that's going to do it. No, I think we're done.
1: Okay. Next next month, Who's Who Update 87 Volume 4. I'm already looking forward to it. Oh, I hope
2: there's more Infinity Ink
1: listings. That would be the best. Or Young All-Stars. (laughs) <laughs> it makes me wonder who's next?
0: Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and part of the DC who's who mm. mr. Boy and, mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and stranger and a Rizzy and hey 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 what what about that one guy what guy mr pretzel mr lipstick mr mitzelfuzzle Mr Mitzi's Pitlick? yeah him he's also part of the DC who's who oh man We forgot Slipknot!
3: As a boy, I was obsessed with Ben Franklin. I even recreated the famous electricity experiment. But I was brash. I cut corners, ignored safety
0: precautions.
3: The resulting lightning strike caused a psychological trauma that forced you into a life of kite-centric crime.
0: Ben Franklin was a fraud. What did this so-called great man ever give us? Bye, Focals. The Franklin stove. Daylight savings time.
3: Never mind.